That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. The return of Damian Lillard last night, Moda Center, packed house, a lot of electricity. We talked about it on yesterday's show. It was the game of the year for the Blazers, and uh, Damian Lillard certainly had a message for the fans in the city of Portland last night uh, in a Blazers win, a rare Blazers win. I mean, I feel the same way about the, the fans here in Portland. I feel the same way about the city, you know, of Portland. Um. You know, I just would want them to know that everything that uh, that I put into my time here, um, everything I ever said about my time here and how I felt about uh, Portland and being here, it was genuine, you know, and I still feel that way today. Um, you know, but life is hard sometimes. You know, you got to make decisions and uh, you got to do hard things, you know, even when you might hurt yourself and you might hurt people that you really care about. Um, but it's not a forever thing, you know. It's just a, it's a sport. It had to happen, and um, you know that's that's where I stand. Part of the game. So is winning and losing. Anthony Simon said the Blazers really wanted it. No, it was great. You know, we came into the game like we know it's a special night for you know a special human being, special player. But we got stuff that we need to learn. We need stuff we need to do as well. We got goals as well. So we wanted to keep you know what I mean. Embrace the moment. But embrace the fans that's here and, and, and try to get a good game, you know what I mean? And I think we did that, and we came out and played well throughout the whole game and got a good win. 119-116, Blazers picked up their 15th win of the year. Big win for the Blazers, a lot of emotion. Chauncey Billups was, seemed happy with it after the game, although he got booed during the game. Here's Chauncey. Man, the atmosphere was awesome, obviously, and we knew that would be the case. Um I just didn't think the moment was too big for our team, you know. Uh, we just played so hard. We played together. We continue to get better just playing for each other. Um, we didn't come unraveled, you know, at the end. We had a lot of miscommunications in that fourth quarter that, that we got to clean up defensively. But, man, even when we did, we just stayed together, you know. No finger pointing, no body, you know, hanging. There. We just stayed together. And I just think um, we're learning so much, you know, the only way that we can truly compete is if we do it together. Blazers won the game 119-116. Some strategic mistakes down the stretch, I thought, from Bucks' new coach, Doc Rivers, who uh, can't seem to find a win early in his tenure in Milwaukee. But, Stephen, you were in the house. Let's start with sort of the atmosphere of the game last night. For those of us who weren't in the building, the run-up to the game, your experience, your kids were going with you to the game. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of uh, pro Damian Lillard excitement last night. Yeah, it was uh, it it was a buzz. It was buzzing there, John. I will say, I've been to a couple games this season, and it's been pretty dead there at the Moda Center. And it was packed. The entire Moda Center was packed the entire time. And and driving in, 
um, you know, we're driving around downtown Portland, driving up to the Motor Center, and we see a ton of Damian Lillard jerseys. And even my kids said that. Like, my oldest is like, man, there are a lot of Dame jerseys out there. And that seems to be the only jersey that people were wearing was Damian Lillard jersey. Uh, my brother went to the game. He was wearing a Damian Lillard jersey. Like, it was a real it was a real celebration of Dame last night, John. I think the Blazers did a really good job of making it about Dame and then almost having the game like as a second type of thing at the very start of the game. Like the introduction, Mark Mason did a great job introducing Dame. There was a standing ovation for probably about a minute straight of just cheering and yelling and screaming for Dame. And it was really nice Dame acknowledging the crowd. But it was a real buzz. It was a real playoff atmosphere. You know, I've been to two playoff games in my life, and it was just as loud last night as it has for those playoff games. And I think the players really loved, like the Blazer, the Blazer players, they haven't had that type of atmosphere all season long. They loved it. Um, so it was really interesting because, you know, so they did the introductions and the crowd had just got done cheering for Dame. Then they showed Doc Rivers because they started introducing the other players, introducing Doc. Doc Rivers gets booed incredibly because they take the camera off Dame. They show Doc Rivers. Then when the Blazers get introduced, they introduce their players and they introduce Chauncey. And, John, I'm not joking. Chauncey Billups got booed even louder than Doc Rivers. Wow. And, and it was a little shocking. Like, we, me and my wife looked at each other and just started laughing. Like, wow, like, they must really hate Chauncey Billups here in Portland. What do you think that's about? Let's drill down on that. Because if he's getting booed louder, louder than Doc Rivers, he's got to hear that. His players hear it. Uh, the Bucks had to look over and go, what was going on with that? But what do you think's happening yeah, with Chauncey? I think even Chauncey like, it laughed a little bit and acknowledged it. Like, wow, I can't believe I got booed this loud either. I don't know what it is because here, here's my thing, John. The Blazers were expected to lose this year, and they're losing. Like, I don't, I don't expect Chauncey to be really a winning coach, yet there are some decisions he's made that fans don't like. And I think the fact that Dame got traded and now the Blazers are down, there's no chance of the playoffs. They just want something different. They want to be back to be relevant again. And so it's so much easier, I think, as fans just to blame the coaching staff and to blame management and to blame everybody else. So, than the players. so help me with this. Do people, do you think people see Chauncey Billups and he sort of, uh, you know, exemplifies or, um, you know, he, he is the, the sort of the watershed moment the pivot out of the Lillard era, it's not Neil Olshay, he's gone. It, you know, it's the face of the franchise now is kind of Chauncey Billups because nobody, there's nobody who has emerged as, you know, a, a, a potential real all-star on the roster. I mean, Shaden right. Sharp is a dunker and Amphrey Simons has got some upside, but, and Scoot Henderson is young, but, you know, walking down the street, it's Chauncey Billups, like who becomes the most recognizable face of kind of this new era. Yeah, no, totally. And once Dame left, he was the face. Now it is Chauncey. I also think the other thing is with this is Chauncey was hired by Neil O'Shea. Like Joe Cronin didn't yeah. hire this guy. It was in, that was the last move that Neil O'Shea ever made. And everyone knew like when they fired Terry Stotts, like, yeah, Chauncey Billups is the guy. Y you can say you're going to interview all these other people, but everyone knew Chauncey was the guy on the inside. And he got the job right away, and you just knew, okay, yeah, this is obvious. This is a Neil O'Shea move. He's been wanting Chauncey forever. Then O'Shea gets you know booted out, and Chauncey's still here. So I think it's still the last remnants of the Neil O'Shea air, a little stank on it there. But it was interesting that he got booed so loudly. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it, so that was a little uh, funny moment there. But then the Blazers, you know, they played uh, a couple tribute videos for Dame in the first quarter, really made it uh, loud, a lot of cheering for Dame, even when he was making buckets. But I will say, John, Blazer fans, when they are engaged and the Motor Center is full, I don't know that there's a better fan base. Like, the Blazer fans were so loud the entire game. It just it felt like a playoff game. It was very 
Very fun, a very fun atmosphere. And even by the end, Dame was drawing some fouls. The fans started booing because they didn't like it. They, mm. they were they were all in on the Blazers once again, and that's how Blazer fans are. It's like, you know what, Dame drew a foul that was kind of, you know, a weak foul that he did in Portland for so many years. Blazer fans got mad about it because they wanted to win the game at the very end. And I think I think it goes to show like once the Blazers, if the Blazers ever get back to that stage, it's going to be really fun because Blazer fans are so passionate about this team. Well, there's a there's a temptation with all fans to believe that when a player leaves, that's the end. It's over. It'll never be the same. Now, for Blazer fans who have been here since 1977, you know that's not true. There's life after Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas. There's life after Dr. Jack Ramsey. There's life before and after uh, the group that included uh, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth, Clyde Drexler. Uh, there was life before and after the era that included, uh, you know, Rasheed Wallace and Damon Stoudemire and the Jailblazers era and Arvita Sabonis even. There's life before and after Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge and before and after Zach Randolph and before and after uh, Damian Lillard. And so I think it's, you know, it, it's a reminder. I guess you get a reminder when you see an ovation like that and an energy like that of what the building can be if you fill it with a team and fill it with fans and energy that are all moving in the same direction. It will come back. But, you know, how fast that comes back is probably not as much up to Chauncey Billups at this point as it is to Jody Allen and Burt Cold. And it's a really precarious position for Blazer fans to be in. And I'll be honest, I saw Mike McDonald, the new Seahawks coach. You know, I saw the video that the Seahawks put out that, you know, he was going to the team facility and all the employees are there. And, of course, Jody Allen's not there because she's at Moda Center for Dame's uh, last game or his return. And, and uh, you know, the person who is greeting Mike McDonald and his wife just inside the front door of Seahawks headquarters is Burt Colt, who's the vice chair of the Blazers and the vice chair of the Seahawks. And I'm just going, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, is this organization going to end up like the Blazers? Are they going to follow that path, and are they going to take Seahawks fans down that same road? Um, you know, I don't know. But last night, it, it, I think it was nice to see the energy, nice to see the return. I was curious what the crowd would do the longer the Blazers hung around and hung into the game. And at the end, the Blazer fans wanted to win. Yeah, and that's the thing, John. You know, you talk about Jody Allen. She was at the game. They didn't show her on on the on the screen on the jumbotron, obviously, because I think that would that would have been really bad. Because I didn't, oh. you know, I, I didn't even look down there. And you had texted me. You're like, "Hey, Jody Allen's in the house," and then I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, weird. They didn't show her or anything." So they didn't show her. Um, because I imagine that would not have been a very good reaction from the crowd, and so I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Um, and I, and you know, what? it felt like for me. And look, I'm I wasn't ever the biggest Dame fan. I you know I've been called a Dame hater numerous times, but it felt like with the Blazers actually winning the game and Dame missing a couple clutch shots and the Bucks end up losing this game, it felt a little like there was some closure that the Anthony Simons got the game winning bucket. I felt like Blazer fans had officially said, "Okay, you know what? We're cheering against Damian Lillard in the fourth quarter here. We want to get a win for the Blazers." And with the Blazers actually get the win, it felt like there was a little bit of closure. It seemed like in the arena, like, "Okay, yeah, we can move on." from Damian Lillard and we can build towards the future. It's going to take a while, but it felt like there was some closure. So I thought I thought all in all it was a it was a really good experience for the kids. Like they got to see Damian Lillard in his first outing, you know, in a Milwaukee Bucks jersey. It looked a little different, but man, you know, they got to cheer for him but also got to see a Blazers win and it felt like the whole crowd just kind of got a little bit of closure at the end of the game like, yeah, you know what? 
the Blazers are going to be all right. At some point, they're going to get back to where they were and make the playoffs without Damian Lillard. Let's go to the phone lines. Charlie's in Vancouver. Join him at 503-417-7575. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, John. I guess I can be called a Dame hater, too, because I'm going to point out the fact that I think that if you surveyed the the GMs that have winning teams and playoff aspirations, maybe championship aspirations, and said, who would you rather have as your point guard in the playoffs, Drew Holiday or Dame Lillard? I bet it would be Drew Holiday. And then my, my next point is I'm really, really frustrated with the Blazers players. You guys came to play last night, man. Come to play every night. We're paying your salaries. You act like you don't care about 60% of the time. About 30% of the time, you act like you do care. And then the 1% last night, you act like you really want to win more than anything else. We should see that every single night, and we shouldn't accept anything less until we do see it. Look, I think that's a great point. Keep your expectations high. That's one of the things I struggled with in coming to this market. You know, I'd left the Bay Area media market, and it's not exactly like a, you know, a rabid sports fan market, the San Francisco Bay Area. There are diehard fans, but there's a lot of transient people in the Bay Area, and sometimes the sports uh, atmosphere there can be a little bit permissive. But there are expectations. The Raiders fans at the time had expectations for the organization. The A's fans and the Giants fans had expectations, and I always found that refreshing. I got here to the state of Oregon, and I feel I felt like immediately, Oregon State fan was riding high because had they they had gone through twenty eight years of not going to a bowl game, and suddenly they had some traction, and they were feeling good about it, and the bar was pretty low. Oregon fans, I felt like the bar was low for them as well, and you know at the time Mike Bellotti, it was not getting the Rose Bowls, but he was getting to like Holiday Bowls and Vegas Bowls, and. And, uh, you know, flirting around with the the breakthrough that would come in the Chip Kelly era. And the Blazer fans, though, were completely, had completely lowered the bar. Like, the, the, to the point where the misbehaving of the team was the story. And, and the expectations of what was going to happen on the court were rooted in, you know, first it was like, you know, we don't need them to be good guys as long as they're good players. And then it shifted to, we actually need them to be good guys. We don't care if they're good players. Like, what happened? Like, you know, what happened to the idea that you could have players who wouldn't get in trouble and would make you proud and also were really good? Like, there's a lot of organizations out there that have them. And Damian Lillard was one of those guys. Like, he didn't get in trouble. He didn't embarrass the organization. He just played at an all star level. And that worked. And so. I really do think that caller hit on something with the expectations of the fans. Like, what you saw last night or what you heard last night, the energy, the expectation, the fact that I'm at a coffee shop yesterday and the barista's going, this is the game of the year. You know, never mind that it had to do with, you know, the former player coming back. There was some buzz around this game. And, you know, the ticket was, uh, you know, it was a fun ticket to have if you were lucky enough to be inside the arena. And so... You know, you need more of that. You should expect more of that. And if the organization doesn't give you that, if they give you a garbage product, you shouldn't support it. You shouldn't show up. You shouldn't buy tickets. I'm not calling for a boycott at this point, but I'm just saying, you you have to vote with your wallet, you know, and if if the product and the ticket is not worth the price of admission, you shouldn't go. And Charlie had a great point about the, about the players on the team not showing up for other games. They've played well the last maybe 
two, three weeks, the Blazers have. Well, now that they've gotten healthy, but it has been a very inconsistent thing, and I think that's where a lot of the booing comes at Chauncey Billups is that the players just haven't been playing hard, and you look at guys like DeAndre Ayton, who was awesome last night. Like, he was incredible, and you watch that guy play, and you're like, man, when he is locked in, he is one of the best centers in the NBA. He has such a nice touch around the hoop. He's active on defense. He's just a giant human being and a great athlete. He can shoot the basketball out to 18 feet. We're automatic, but he doesn't show up every game, and he doesn't even show up half the time. He's played well the last couple of games, and he's awesome, but is that on Chauncey Billups or is that on the players? And I think a lot of fans – like I said, it's easy to blame the coach's staff, and so you're going to go to him first. You're going to blame Chauncey first. And so you know, it's just one of those things, John, where if you can't get the players to play hard, I'm with you. Like, you don't need to go support the product. It's it's tough to go watch the Blazers go out and lose to some bad teams and then watch them play against, you know, on ESPN, your only national televised game, watch them play well. And it's just it's tough, man. Like, it, it, you want to see just a consistent product whether they're good or not you want to see hustle out of the players every game and we haven't seen that I, I there was also one other funny moment in the game john that i think kind of defines the chauncey billups era here in portland uh there was a play ball gets knocked out of bounds refs didn't know who goes off of so they call it jump ball chauncey challenges <laughs> thinking that the blaze is going to get the ball <laughs> the bucks end up getting the ball so chauncey wins a challenge but the Bucks got the ball, so it goes against the Blazers. So he kept he kept the timeout, kept the challenge. He won the challenge, and it lost out for the Blazers. I felt like that kind of just defines Chauncey's era so far here in Portland. I uh, just laughing at. So he wins the challenge, but he doesn't know that by winning the challenge, he's still not getting the ball. Yeah, they actually yeah. Lo- they lost yeah. the challenge, but technically won yeah. the challenge. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's bad. Dave in Vancouver. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, so I called yesterday and asked uh, asked you like, do you think they're gonna? Uh, show the opening lineup on air and what was discouraging and unfortunate is uh the the college game before the blazer game on espn went to overtime and so i was frantic and i I, so i turned to your competitor station and listened to it on the radio and it was probably better than espn's broadcast it it was great i saw a little bit of that you know in on you know online with people who were going I don't want this. I need to see the introductions for the game. Uh, that's a miss by ESPN. They're not thinking about what's going on in Portland. Should have, at the very least, gone split screen late in the uh, late in that college game. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about something that's been bugging me. Jabari has transferred from Washington to Oregon, and you know it's for Dan Lanning's team, but uh, Muhammad's getting ready. Washington fans are mad at him. It's a game that I I don't quite understand when grown-ups attack. We'll talk about it uh, coming up with a recruiting expert who covers the Oregon Ducks. Max Torres is going to join us from Ducks Digest. He talked with Jabbar Muhammad. He has a sense of why he decided to go from Washington to Oregon. But we're going to talk about the bigger picture. And at 4 o'clock, be here for Jed Lowry, former Major League Baseball infielder, longtime Oakland A., we're going to talk baseball and will it work in the state of Oregon with Jed Lowry coming up at 4 o'clock. Be here for it all. Well, I wrote today at johnconzano.com about uh, a variety of different things. It was a potpourri. It was a, it was a cornucopia. It was, uh, it was just a, uh, it was a shotgun blast of reporting and information. I basically emptied my notebook on things ranging from Damian Martinez's new car, which he posted on social media to uh, the Oregon-Hawaii game, which is off on August 24th. It's not happening, but it remains on the schedule if you go to GoDucks.com. And I uh, I get into why that is 
Game's off. You know, no. If you have a ticket and you're going to fly to Hawaii, you can go to Hawaii, but you're not going to go see a football game involving the Oregon Ducks in uh, August of this summer. Uh, and I also wrote a little bit about Jabbar Muhammad. And for people who don't know, he's a University of Washington defensive back who started his career out of high school at Oklahoma State, played three seasons there, transferred to Washington, was very good this last season, big part of their defense and their run to the national championship game. He decided after Kalen DeBoer got in the transfer portal and took a job at Alabama, well, uh, Jabbar Muhammad decided, you know, uh, he had a choice. Uh, Does he stay at Washington and play for Jed Fish, brand new coach, or if he's going to play for a new coach, does he go somewhere else? He has decided to go to the University of Oregon. He announced it on social media last Saturday. I was on press row at Matthew Knight Arena when he tweeted it. There was kind of a little bit of a stir on uh, press row. And our next guest uh, had all the details because he talked with Jabbar Muhammad. Max Torres, you can uh, read him and find his work at Ducks Digest. Covers the Oregon Ducks. And he's joining us now. How you doing, Max? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me. Man, I love how crisp you sound, how close you sound. That's awesome. Um, give me an idea. Like when you saw Jabbar Muhammad to Oregon, what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I knew it was definitely a, a big move, a big pickup for the Ducks. It, it was largely a move that I was expecting. I think I had a pretty good pulse on that recruitment. Uh, pretty much from the moment he hit the portal, I knew that that was going to be an Oregon versus Texas battle, even though he did take that visit out to Tuscaloosa to see Kalen DeBoer in the Tide. But I knew it was a huge pickup for the Ducks. It was one that I think they needed just as they make their move to the Big Ten. And with this expanded playoff, you're going to have to have top DBs if you want to ultimately go and get that first national championship. And, and Debar, Jabbar Muhammad, excuse me, it, it was certainly the best available. Now, there, you know, the... The departure of a coach, uh, you know, always causes angst in a fan base. The Washington fans were not happy with Jabbar Muhammad going from Washington to Oregon. There was a lot of uh, blowback on social media. I don't, I don't really get it. But that's more of your world. Like, you know, I, I don't want to single out Washington fans because Alabama fans were tweeting at him as well. They were mad he didn't pick Alabama. Texas fans were mad he didn't pick Texas. This happens whenever players are up in the air. But Give me an idea. When you see that stuff, Max, like, what do you make of that? And what do you make of the grown-ups who are going after the kids? It's pretty ridiculous, John. I do see it a lot, especially not even with just transfer portal guys. I'll see it with high school recruits, guys that are even younger than these transfer portal guys. And, and it's it's pretty sad to see, honestly, because, um, you know, this was actually part that I didn't include in the interview. But when I talked to Jabbar about it, he was saying, you know, if, if these guys were in my position, more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what he was getting at, is if these guys were in my position and, you know, they had a chance to, you know, if they had a job or something that was a better, better opportunity, better fit for them, they, they would be, you know, doing the same thing. So he was super, super mature um, about the answer, just saying that, you know, I have a great family, a great support system that, that I'm leaning on through all of this process. So he he said that he's not really paying it any mind, but it's it's pretty insane that you see, these uh, keyboard warriors or whatever you want to call them on Twitter, just saying pretty, pretty tasteless things to, to these student athletes. So, um, you know, Jabbar handled it the right way. And um, you, you, all you can really hope for is that that doesn't happen anymore, but you know, it's, it's something that we still see. You talked to him, you had the interview with him, you got a sense of kind of where his head was and 
why he made the decision he made. Uh, you know, let's start with that. Like, you know, he's probably, what is he looking for? When Kalen DeBoer leaves, what is Jabbar Muhammad looking for? I think he was looking for that that place that was going to be able to do a couple of different things for him. I think the first one was be playing for a contender. That was something that came up repeatedly in my discussions with him as he was in the portal and, and taking some of these trips, going to a place that was going to be able to contend for uh, a national title. And I think Oregon certainly checks that box with, with the roster that Dan Lanning and the rest of that coaching staff is, is building out in Eugene. And then um, you also look uh, at the fact that he was looking for a place that was going to kind of help promote him and, and market him and, and put him out there to help him realize that lifelong dream of, of going to the NFL. And, and if he can come to Eugene and pick up right where he left off with the Huskies playing lockdown defense, I, I think he'll be in a very good position to do just that. His family, he also made a, you know, in, in the piece you wrote, he made mention of Dan Lanning connecting with his family. How important is that stuff with, with recruits? Because I got to think they're being sold all the time. And I, I, I don't know, I'd just be a little leery of, you know, they connect with your family. Like how, what puts one coaching staff in front of another when it comes to that family feel? Something that I've been kind of tracking lately or just digesting myself is, is, the, the importance of connecting with the family versus just the recruit because you can win over a recruit, but if you don't have the family on board, then they're obviously not going to be as in support uh, of that decision as just the player is. So I think w- what really has put Oregon, I think, over some of these other schools is just the, the all-out approach that they have. It's not just one coach recruiting the player and the family. It's multiple coaches, uh, Dan Lanning, was obviously personally involved with this one. Tosh Lapoy and newly promoted defensive backs coach Chris Hampton, all those guys were involved. Um, they, they go above and beyond as far as just trying to find those little details that could be like, wow, you knew that? Or you know, maybe it's something I'm doing hypothetical here. Maybe it's like bringing a certain food or just doing those small things to make it feel like a home away from home. And I think that it just shows you that the staff will go to any length to to try to separate themselves and take that unique recruiting approach to to ultimately get the job done. So some of that, uh, some of that, I don't know if I'd say Southern hospitality necessarily, but that was part of what he talked about. You know, he said they have some people from the South uh, up there in Eugene, so it kind of felt like the South a little bit. And he's not the first recruit that's told me that, John, interestingly enough, but that's uh, kind of just some of the background there about kind of what the Ducks are doing to put themselves over the top with these families, I think. Ducks Digest is a Sports Illustrated channel featuring Max Torres, our guest now, talking about uh, Jabbar Muhammad in Oregon. And, you, you know, in your piece, you know, he makes this comment about FaceTiming. He says Dan Lanning was always FaceTiming him and Tosh Lapoy, the defensive coordinator, was FaceTiming him. And I found that interesting because I'll be honest with you, Max, like I had a, I had a uh, call with Mario Cristobal, who's at Miami now, and I expected him to call me, and he FaceTimed me. It was jarring to me. What is it with these coaches? Why do they want to see people's faces? I'm not too sure. Uh, I, I haven't had the opportunity to be on FaceTime with, with a coach. Um, but I think I think just it's another personal way to, to connect with players and, and with recruits. And I think a big part of it, too, is just taking advantage of the technology that, that we have at our fingertips. I think... I can't imagine what doing this job would be like even 20 years ago 
just all the technology, whether it's social media, YouTube, Huddle, Instagram, like it's just you are connected with someone at the drop of a hat. And I think doing something like a FaceTime maybe shows a little bit more effort because you can see exactly how the person's acting. And I think when when you ultimately get out to whatever school it is, obviously Oregon in this instance, I think that that's, uh, you know, you're seeing that Dan Lanning and these coaches are the same as they were when, when they were recruiting, um, you know, a said player like Jabbar Muhammad. He was talking about how they just kept telling him, hey, we want to get you out of here. We want We want to get you out here. And he's like, I'm ready to get out there. And then I think really he said that, um, you know, it kind of kind of felt like home and, and it felt like it was the spot he needed to be at once he got to take that visit. Was there strategy in the way they announced it? You know, it's a big basketball game. Oregon's playing Arizona. You know, Lanning's at the basketball game. Or is that just coincidental that Muhammad happens to tweet it at that moment? Uh, I viewed it as a little bit of a coincidence, but I do think that a lot of these announcements are incredibly strategic. If you're looking at the bigger picture here for that weekend, not only was there a big basketball game on, you had Lanning wearing the the grass is damn green in Eugene mm-hmm. sweatshirt, which was, was newly released. Like that's a big part of it. But the Ducks also had their big junior day, one of two junior days that they're having with top recruits flocking in from all over the country. And I think to to just have it during that weekend while he was on campus I think it all plays into just building up this momentum as much as you possibly can. So I don't see it so much uh, overlapping necessarily with the basketball game, but when you have all of that, the, the merchandise, the spring game announcement, it's, the staff is just pulling all the right strings at the right time, and I think Muhammad's announcement is the latest example of that. Yeah, I think they're far more sophisticated than they used to be back in the day when people were faxing in their uh, their commitment. Uh, we're talking to Max Torres, who covers the University of Oregon, uh, recruiting in particular. Um, you know, you used to hear kids say that it was facilities mattered, playing time matter, relationship with the staff matters. Now we have some different different attractions with NIL and, and uh, you know, the the move to the Big Ten. And it's, what, what do you think mattered matters to kids in general? Like, and, and is it the same? Can you, can you get sort of big picture, you know, uh, consensus on any of that? Or is it individual and, and has to be tailored to every kid? I think it is individual in, in some cases, but having done this for a while, I think that there are two big things that really, maybe three, let's go three, that really I think every player I talk to kind of comes around to in one way or another. The first one's relationships. I've heard this a couple of times just talking about, hey, yeah, you know, Oregon has great facilities or every school has amazing facilities. But what really matters are the people, the ones behind the scenes, the ones that are going to be coaching you up and and you're seeing on a day to day basis and that are ultimately going to take care of you and and help you get to that next spot in your career, that next level. So the, the relationships are a huge part. The development factor is huge. I can't tell you how many times, John, I've I've heard, oh, yeah, Dan Lanning's from Georgia, Tosh LePoy's from Bama, so they know what winning football looks like. That is a recurring theme across so many of these interviews. Or, you know, Will Stein's offense is, is uh, you know, getting these 1,000-yard receivers or putting up these crazy numbers. So the development factor is very real, which is why I think uh, I'm excited to see what the draft, the Ducks can do in the draft because I think that is another phenomenal recruiting tool. Um, and then the third one, I think, is the brand or couple that with exposure. I think that, you know, when you think of Eugene, you don't think of a massive major city, but with technology, 
the Nike brand, the tradition and history of Oregon's program. Like there's just so, the Big Ten Conference. There's all these factors that continue to pile up and can really help Oregon, I think, play bigger and have a bigger presence than you would expect from a kind of smaller city in Western Oregon. The Big Ten, Oregon heading there. You, you've sort of had a cl- up-close look at the recruiting class. How, do, how does Oregon's recruiting class position it to compete right away in the Big Ten, two years from now in the Big Ten? What's, what trend do you see forming? The, the trend's shooting through the roof, really, is, is, is what it's looking like. I think that they are perfectly positioned to contend immediately in the Big Ten because – we saw Dan Lanning put that emphasis on recruiting the trenches, particularly along the defensive line. I think that Oregon has kind of proven that they can do a bit more with less uh, along the offensive line, and, and that's by no means a shot to the players that are playing that position. But I think that they were just not where they needed to be necessarily with the caliber of defensive line talent that they were bringing in, but that immediately changed once once Dan Lanning came in. I, I think he signed the best defensive line class from the high school ranks in the 2024 class. And then you bring in a guy like Jamari Caldwell from the transfer portal to get some experience there. And I think that they are positioned to, to be incredibly competitive and very successful for years to come in the Big Ten. All right, Max, I really appreciate you joining us. Great stuff, great insight, great work in getting Jabbar Muhammad in, uh, in, for that interview. If you want to read it, you can. Uh, I link to Max's piece in, uh, in what I wrote today at johnconzano.com. Or you can find Max uh, on social media as well. He's an easy find there. Max Torres, uh, you're the best, man. M. Torres Sports. uh, And, Max, I really appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. All right. There he goes. Max Torres coming up. Jed Lowry. We got him top of the hour. But next, it's our big splash. And before we go to break, listen, if you're on social media and you're a fan, you're excited about your team, Great. It's wonderful. That's that's part of the beauty of sports. And if a player leaves, decides to go to the NFL, decides to leave and get in the portal, go to another team, you're entitled to be disappointed. But here's where I draw the line. If Kalen DeBoer leaves Washington and goes to Alabama, chasing $10 million a year in salary, and, uh, you know, and Jabbar Muhammad leaves Washington and says, I'm not here for a rebuild. I got one year of eligibility left and decides to go to Oregon. Wish the kid well. Cry it out loud. Like, you borrowed him from Oklahoma State in the first place. You know, when you hire a mercenary, Han Solo can tell you this, they're not in it for the for the revolution. They're in it for the paycheck, okay? And he's got one year of eligibility. Not going to hang around and help Jed Fish build a foundation. He wants to win. He wants to maximize his opportunity. Uh, Wish the kid well. Be a grown-up, for crying out loud. Our Big Splash, next. Don't be fooled by last night's Blazers win. I got some Blazer fans who were saying, hey, they figured something out last night. No, they didn't figure something out. I think they beat a Milwaukee team that has been sputtering a little bit, and I think there was a lot of emotion in the building. I expect the Blazers to go right back to doing what they have been doing which is working really hard towards getting a uh, a high lottery pick. And uh, I think they'll, at the trade deadline, do some additional things to help in that effort. Um, the over-under on wins this season is 28.5. It was struck me last night. Gosh, the odds makers are good. Struck me last night, Stephen, that uh, there was that wager that uh, DraftKings posted 
Over under on uh, Damian Lillard points is 25 and a half. And uh, the parlay they were offering or the special they were offering was the Bucks have to win the game. Lillard ends with 25 points and the Bucks lose in, in losing the final minute. You know, there's a reason why these sports books and Las Vegas is the way it is, right? It's not by giving out free money; it's by uh, winning money. So they, there, you know, <laughs> that's what I've learned as a gambler, as a 36, almost 37 year old man. Like I've learned, they're smarter than me, but I just got to pick and choose the spots. Were you Were you watching Lillard going shoot, shoot, and when uh, when when Brooke Lopez takes the shot late in the game, like by the way that he shouldn't have been taking? Uh, were you going, no, give it to Dame? Kind of, a little bit, because I, I may or may not have been on you know a bet like that with Dame. <laughs> but uh, you know what? I'll disagree with you. I thought Brooke Lopez should have shot that shot. Dame, Dame's shot was not on last night. Brooke Lopez was hitting threes. I, that was the right play. I, I know Blazers fans wanted to see Dame hit the game-winning shot, which would have been you know such a epic thing to have happen and the drama, but Brooke Lopez made the right play. Let's be I, If I'm Doc Rivers... I am not letting Brooke Lopez take that shot. I want Giannis or Dame taking that shot. And, oh, by the way, why is Dame inbounding the ball to Giannis when the Blazers are fouling? I told you this, John. When they hired Doc Rivers, there's no coach in the NBA that does less with more than Doc Rivers. And I think wild. they are 0-2 with Doc. I I tell you what, I we were talking about this, like who who's a contender in the East? I don't think the Bucks are a real contender in the East. With the way that their roster is, the way that Dame looks, like he doesn't look washed, but he looks a little less explosive than he has in his his whole his entire career. Doc Rivers is the coach; can't trust him. I don't know. I'm I'm excited to see what the Bucks do in the playoffs, but I don't expect a lot out of them. I'll be honest. I'll be. I'll tell you this. I yeah. To the point. I it looked like Lillard had lost like a half a step, and he just he just wasn't as explosive. And I'm looking at his forty five million dollar a year salary, and I'm going. Look, it doesn't feel good right now for Blazer fans, but I think in a year, year and a half, I think Blazer fans are going to be really happy that Lillard is not on the payroll at $46, $47, 48000000 million. And this is what I said. I've been kind of wanting the trade for a couple of years. I think the Blazers made, you know, they kind of got lucky that Dame asked to be out because if he's on Portland this year, who knows what the value that they could have gotten for Dame if he looked like this with Portland this year. Like, I think they may have cashed out at the perfect time with Damian Lillard right before he hits the downside of his career. He's still going to be good, still going to have a lot of good games, but I, he's definitely not the Dame that he was, you know, the last three or four years. All right, let's get to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. A Southwest Airlines flight from Baltimore to Phoenix made news this morning. There was a mid-flight medical emergency. Doctor and nurse uh, attended to a woman who was having trouble breathing. They could not find a pulse. Blood pressure was low. She required oxygen to breathe. It was a genuinely scary moment, according to a passenger on the plane. A man in the aisle seat, though, popped up. It was Ravens tight end Mark Andrews. Freshly out of the playoffs, eliminated by Patrick Mahomes, he asks, could it be her blood sugar? I have a diabetic testing kit. Turns out, probably was blood sugar. He instructed the medical professionals on how to use the test kit. Paramedics met the flight. Andrews deplaned quietly. Uh, No fanfare there, but a bunch of strangers 
spring into action to help save a woman's life, including Ravens tight end Mark Andrews, who was in the playoffs but is no longer in the playoffs. Funny tweet uh, by somebody following it saying, Breaking news, Lamar Jackson saves a woman's life by throwing an interception into triple coverage. The Ravens, not in the playoffs, not in the Super Bowl, and Mark Andrews on that plane because of it. There you go. That's our big splash. I love that. That's a sliding doors moment. That's a, uh, you know, uh, butterfly effect moment. Lamar Jackson very indirectly saves this woman's life by throwing uh, an interception into triple coverage. Then you got Andrews on this plane, the Southwest plane that he wouldn't otherwise have been on, and he ends up helping save this woman's we, life. We and talk about... We talk about the negativity of the internet and Twitter, but this is the good part of it. Like, those type of jokes are just great. Like, that is so creative and it's so true. Yeah. It's like, you know what? Yeah, thank you, Lamar, for throwing that interception, even though, you know, it cost me money on when I bet on the Ravens, but we saved a lady's life, which is more important. I love that. I love the butterfly effect, all right, when you talk about that. And uh, this kind of stuff happens, you know, uh, all the time. If you think about it, if you start going down that rabbit hole, you can really get there. But remember, Mark Andrews was the tight end that uh, – that John Harbaugh activated right before the game. He had the injury earlier in the year. They activated him just for that playoff game uh, against the Chiefs. And now, now, so is that woman a Ravens fan or a Chiefs fan uh, as she recovers? I think Ravens. Got to be. Got to be a Lamar fan, right? Probably. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, too. We'll talk about the Super Bowl coming up. Uh, and all next week, we'll be locked in on the Super Bowl. It's going to be uh, a lot of what we do as we'll. You know, the championship game of the NFL is uh, coming down the pipeline. But really interesting to kind of hear some of the narratives that are forming out there. People are talking trash about Brock Purdy still. People are uh, talking about how Patrick Mahomes loves, uh, like a lot of athletes, high-level athletes, relishes in trying to prove people wrong, loves the chip on his shoulder. So, you know, speaking of the chip on the Damian Lillard's shoulder last night, you know, and throughout his career, uh, Patrick Mahomes has that thing too. Um, I find it interesting, like, you know, do you, I, even though the Niners are a two-point favorite in this game, I don't see Patrick Mahomes being able to, with a straight face, talk about, you know, hey, nobody believes in us. Because they're, com- they're you know, in a lot of ways, no one's going to be surprised if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. This isn't an upset. This game feels more like a pick to me. But, you know, high-level athletes will do this. Michael Jordan did this. I, I saw Damian Lillard do this. Kobe did this. They will pick a fight that doesn't exist, and they'll manifest it into something that creates a us-against-the-world mentality or at least a paradigm in their own mind. That, and the rest of us are going, you're, you're, it's not an upset. This isn't, you know, nobody's out to get you. You know, and Damian Lillard did it, you know, sort of manifesting a, a beef with Paul George before hitting that shot, you know, in his face. Yeah, and, and, you know. Yeah, two years ago, Georgia, when they won the national title, they were all saying, hey, you guys picked us to be 7-5. and five. And nobody could find any truth that anyone picked them to be 7-5. and five. But it's like, you know, Kirby Smart got in their yeah. ear. I do think it's fun, John, in this Super Bowl, both quarterbacks can be like, you know what? No one believes in me. And they're both in the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes being, you know, an underdog again. And then Brock Purdy could say, look, nobody even thinks – Nobody thinks I'm the reason that we're here. Nobody thinks, you know, I'm the actual reason for the 49ers are good. Everyone, you know, give everyone else credit. Everyone else says I, I suck. Like, it's one of those things where it's very interesting that both quarterbacks, usually usually NFL is all about quarterbacks. This game in particular, both quarterbacks can claim disrespect in this game. Well, Cam Newton dishing some disrespect for Brock Purdy here in this clip. I've never said that Brock Purdy was trash. 
What I did say is Brock Parody is a game manager. That's not hate. That's just what I feel to be facts. But I still reserve the right to say this. To be labeled a game changer, Brock Parody has to be the best player on the offensive side of the ball. Mm. And that's not the case. And who's the best player? Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> Man, look, I ain't recanting shit. And if you really want to just be honest, if you add in the defensive talent and you add in the offensive talent, Brock Parity is the 10th best player on this team. Okay, cool. Did he have a great game? Yes. Yeah. Is he been playing out of his mind? Yes. Is he a quarterback that's hot? Yeah. Yes. But he's still the 10th best player on his team. I think 10 might be a, a mild exaggeration. I think he's more like the sixth or seventh best player on the team. I think offensively, I would I would put Trent Williams, McCaffrey, Debo, Kittle. Uh, defensively, there's maybe uh, maybe I'd take the linebackers. Maybe he's about the seventh best player on the on the team. Maybe Bosa in front of. Maybe he's eighth. I don't know. But but here's the here's the point. Like he doesn't need to be. The, the third best player or the first best player in the team. This isn't a team that's built like a Cam Newton, Carolina Panthers team that played in a Super Bowl. The Niners have got a lot of talent, and Brock Purdy's job is to get the ball to those guys. He's a distributor in this offense, and I've been impressed with his poise. Um, and, you know, we've seen him play a couple of bad games this year. He can't have a bad game. If he has a bad game, the Niners are going to lose. If he has a good game, uh, they're right in there with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. They can play, and I think it'll be a great Super Bowl because of it. Jed Lowry coming up. He is a native son in the state of Oregon. Major League Baseball player next. We were talking earlier in the week about the native sons in the state of Oregon when it comes to sports figures. Who are the native sons? And we were talking about people like Phil Knight, Pat Casey, Talking about baseball players like Jacoby Ellsbury, Joey Harrington in football, Justin Herbert, Mel Renfro and Bob Lilly, Pro Football Hall of Fame, Native Sons, Terry Baker won a Heisman Trophy, Native Son. So many good ones. We could do a whole show on it someday. Well, our next guest is one of those Native Sons. Born in Salem, Oregon. Later attended North Salem High School. Went to college at Stanford. Pac-10 Conference Player of the Year. Playing at Stanford. First team All-American. Had a great career in Major League Baseball. Jed Lowry. He's with the Red Sox, the Astros, the A's. Among others. Joining us now. Jed Lowry, where are you today? I'm at home. I'm at home enjoying this beautiful weather right now. Love that. Where's home? Where are you? Where are you? Uh, where are you living? Uh, I'm I'm here in Portland. No, oh, nice. Now, yeah. I, I, I can I go back? Can we start at the beginning? And I, I want to. I have a question that comes off of where you're living, but I, uh, I want to go all the way back if you don't mind. Let's go back to Salem, yeah, Oregon. Please. L- little league, d- little league. What do you remember in from your baseball upbringing in Salem? Parish, Parish, little league. Uh, and if anybody had ever, uh, if anybody listening has ever been to Parish of the League, the, the one stands out is the mushroom plant that was right next door and yes. the very distinct smell uh, that, that came from that mushroom plant. 
you kind of don't smell it after a while if you've been there. If you're playing like at about the <laughs> fifth inning, you probably you don't hear, smell it anymore, and then you then you kind of gotta wonder. But you got your upbringing there, and you know, obviously, you're a kid that you know you start at North Salem High School, and at a time yeah. when, you know, I kind of wondered with you, you know, Stanford obviously speaks for itself, but if Oregon State had been better at that time, would that have been a hard decision for you, Stanford or Oregon State? Well, I, I think once I once I got into Stanford, it, it was um, it was a pretty easy choice. But you know, growing up, I was a I was a Beaver fan. My dad went to Oregon State. My mom worked through their extension uh, program for thirty years. Um, you know, I I was a Beaver growing up. So uh, and, and I knew Pat uh, Casey, and and um, you know, he's a fantastic uh, coach and has done amazing things for that program. And you know, I grew up playing with guys like. Uh, like Jacoby, like Cole Gillespie, and uh, a guy that ended up going to Arizona, Trevor Crow. That was uh, that was a you know one of the summer ball teams I played on for for Team Oregon. Um, so no, Oregon State was very much in the in the running, but you know I, I once I got into Stanford, um, you know that that's a hard place to turn down. Yeah, and you get there at a time when uh, you know Mark Marquis was coming off you know, a run of titles in the late 90s, early 2000s, who really mm. built built that program. So many major league mm. players who had come through there. So much culture there. Yeah, that Can you maybe speak a little bit about the culture at Stanford in baseball? We we know the university, but for people who don't understand yeah. kind of what Marquis started and David Esker and others had been part of. Mm. Yeah. No, I, um, you know, Marquis obviously uh, he just built that program from the ground up. Uh, and, and just had had such a su- did such a great job of getting the most out of all those players. I mean, we we competed hard, and he knew uh, you know how to get the most out of his guys. We uh, we knew what the expectations were, um, and, and it just you know we we had a, a tight knit group of guys. I'm still on group chats with a lot of guys I played uh, played with there, and, and I think that Dave Esker has just done a fantastic job coming in and. Um, you know, that's a hard act to follow, and he's just taken the reins and run with it. Yeah, and I, I know that, you know, Je- you had Jeffrey Hammonds, Mike Mussina, um, and others who were there, you know, years before you, but those guys would come back, wouldn't they? And they'd work out in the off season. They'd throw. You could see them around the batting cage. You could see those guys at the stadium. Yeah, no, I, it's a, you know, the, the culture of that and, and, you know, just having, having guys around and seeing the, you know, the, we would always play that fall ball game where um, the alumni would come back. Uh, and so, you know, just being around guys like that, getting to, you know, just listen to them and listen to their experiences, you know, prepared uh, the current, you know, class of players to, uh, you know, if they got the opportunity to, to play at the next level, uh, a little bit more prepared. Jed Lowry, our guest, uh, former Major League Baseball infielder and the pride of North Salem High School. Uh, you know, we always talk about, you know, the, we'll ask baseball players about baseball, but I want you to think bigger picture, other sports you played, maybe even junior high or rec sports. But, you know, there was a community there in Salem that really put its arm around kids, and, and every community does this. But you had a chance to participate in things and have fun playing sports and you know, aside from the athleticism, what comes to mind when I start talking about that? Because for me, it was like my middle school gym teacher who was, you know, just had a giant heart and he coached every team. But what does Jed Lowry think about when you think about kind of that that adolescent experience playing sports? Yeah, I, I mean, particularly at North, you know, I played basketball all the way all, all the way through high school. Um, 
I, I thought about quitting my senior year because I had already committed uh, and, and gotten in early to Stanford and to play baseball. And I, I'm so glad I didn't, you know, some of my best friends still to this day were, were on that, um, you know, senior basketball team at North. Uh, and, and still to this day, I love, I love basketball. Um, and, you know, one, one of my favorite sports to watch uh, at the Blazers, you know, Bucks game last night, couldn't, couldn't miss that one. Um, so yeah, just a, just a great, uh, you know, great culture, great opportunity to, you know, be around, uh, guys and play multiple sports and, um, you know, just, just grow from those experiences. Are you able to kind of enjoy that when, you know, you, you've been on that stage on a baseball field and at a stadium where people are paying to come see you play, are you able to relax and just kind of enjoy a basketball game like that as a fan? No, I, you know, I, I, yes and no. I mean, I, you know, especially a, as emotionally charged as last night was with Dame coming back into town. But, um, you know, I, I, I just have such a deep appreciation for the athleticism of those guys and the skill that, skill that they possess and, um, you know, show off on a nightly basis. Uh, you know, the team, I, I actually, I kind of enjoy watching uh, th- this team right now and the development uh, of these young players. Um, so I, I know that might not be a, a common, uh, you know, a, a common thing amongst Blazers fans, but, you know, it's, it's fun to watch talented young players learn how to play the game. You're watching a Major League Baseball game. You and I are sitting in the crowd. Are you watching the middle infielders? Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, you know, that, that's the great thing about baseball, too, is that there's just there's so many things going on. Um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm watching the middle infielders. I'm watching where they're positioned. I'm, you know, I'm watching coaches. Um, there's just, there's no end in the, you know, strategy and or communication that's happening, uh, in between pitches. And it's, uh, you know, the little things you notice after you spend as much time in the game, uh, as I have, are, uh, it's fun to watch from the other side now. Jed Lowry with us. You are, you know, an All-American by the time you leave Stanford, and I have to think at that time, just because of the line of players who had gone from Stanford to the big leagues, you're thinking professional baseball or bust, but you leave Stanford and you, you get into the baseball minor leagues, and was it a shock to your system, or did you hit the ground running, or how did that feel in those early years in the, in the minor leagues? Well, you know, we, uh, Mark was had uh, prepared us all pretty well for that. You know, he would... He would let us know how good we had it being there in, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, on Stanford's campus uh, and what minor league baseball was like. And, you know, I got a, my, my first night in, uh, in minor league baseball uh, was spent in a college dorm room. You know, I'd just done my press conference at Fenway and taken batting practice on the field. All these superstars, they had just won the World Series. There's, you know, more cameras than I've ever seen in my life. And the next day, I'm sleeping in a um, a college dorm room on a bunk bed uh, with plastic over the mattress, with no sheets and no <laughs> pillow. So I slept I slept in my clothes and uh, with a hooded sweatshirt as my pillow. I love that. Like, yeah. Hey, welcome, just when you welcome, think welcome, welcome to the minor yeah. league, kid. <laughs> just when you think you've made it, there you go. Um, you know, but you you know, you're a great story. You go through three different minor league levels pretty rapidly. You get your call up April the 10th, 2008 for the Red Sox. You make your debut five days later, and you drive in three runs in a 5-3 to three win in Cleveland. Like, that that had to feel damn good. Oh, man. I, 
it's one of those uh, it's one of those things that um, you know you, you're you're never going to forget. I, I remember my grandma um, coming to me, you know, I, uh, or talking to her maybe a day or two later, and um, you know she was watching, uh, assuming on the edge of her seat, and she told me, you know, I was so nervous watching you because you were chewing your gum so fast that uh, it made me more nervous. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, and I and I think we won that game three to one, or you know, it was. I, I think if I didn't drive in all of the runs, it yeah. was it, it was the majority of them. Um, so that was that was pretty special to you know to be a run producer, you know, right off of Jump Street. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I I think I turned some heads uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, you drove in three, and the final score was five to three. So they needed you, otherwise, mm-hmm. they, you know they lose that game and yeah. had had to feel yeah. good you know it, it, and when you're in that moment though give me an idea because you got grandma watching you got everybody from north salem probably watching knowing you're there you're playing for so many people but if you let that kind of get in your head it'll consume you so how do you focus when you step in the batter's box and by the way who was the pitcher when you stepped in that first time well my my first my first at bat was against paul bird um, and I, I, I didn't, my first at bat was ended up being a strikeout. I missed a double down the right field line by about three inches. It, mm-hmm. it might've been more, but it sure felt like three inches. Um, and then I had an RBI ground out. Um, and then I hit a bases loaded single, uh, to drive in the other two. Nice. Uh, yeah. And it, it's just, it, it's got to feel good in that minute, in that moment. And, you know, fast forward, yeah. obviously, let's jump ahead. But, you know, there's an all-star game a decade later. And I don't know if you mm. thought about it when you were in Boston or Houston or Oakland and then back to Houston and then back to Oakland. And, you know, I don't know if you thought, hey, maybe I'll make an all-star game someday. Did you have that in your head or were you just kind of playing season to season at that point? I mean, I, I always felt I, I could. Um, you know, I think that you, you have to – you have to have that belief in yourself um, and, you know, believe and, and not necessarily make it to the all-star game, but you're that type of, you know, that caliber of player. Um, and I, I thought I was close a couple years. Uh, you know, I was on a, I was on a train, you know, a rebuilding team in Houston uh, in 2012 and uh, a young uh, Jose Altuve um, was our all-star that year. And we've obviously seen where, you know, his career is gone and, and um, what he's been able to do. Um, so, but I thought I, I thought I had a good chance that year to make it. And then another year in Oakland, I thought I had a good chance to make it. So when it finally happened, um, I mean, it was, it was emotional and, and um, you know, just a, uh, you know, just a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to represent myself and my family uh, and the A's at, uh, you know, at the All-Star Game. And you, you walk into that clubhouse that night and it's Aaron Judge and Mike Trout and Mookie Betts and, you know, you, you're looking across uh, on the other side and there's Bryce Harper and Freddie Freeman and, uh, you know, both Buster Posey's on the other, in the other dugout. I mean, you, you had to kind of look around and go, hey, you know that that that's validation. If you know being an All American at Stanford or getting that first major league hit is validation, I I can't imagine what it's like to just be at the All Star game and look around the the clubhouse. Yeah, and and you know I, I I certainly wasn't the new kid on the block by that time. Everybody had kind of you know no everybody kind of knew me and and um you know and and I, I I was I got a lot of congratulations and um you know, hey, you deserve this, uh, happy to have you here type of sentiment. So, 
um, yeah, that that's super validating from you know big stars, and um, that, that was a, that was a special moment in my life. Who who was your favorite player growing up? Ken Griffey Jr. Um, you know, I, I think uh, playing playing in the uh, backyard uh, home run derby that was the guy that I you know I always emulated. Um, the guy that uh, the guy that you know if, if I'm looking at it um, from you know where I uh, maybe drew inspiration from my own game uh, was Carlos Guillen. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed watching Carlos Guillen play. I mean, he's just a, a model professional switch hitter, middle infielder. Um, and I, I just, I, I really appreciated his game and, and, um, you know, I, I think I learned a lot through osmosis, just watching him play. Did you ever get a chance to tell Griffey that he was that guy for you? Yeah, I, uh, I, I did. I actually got to play golf with him in Florida, um, a while back. And, um, so that was, that was a fun experience. Um, and, and then, you know, I've just seen him at various events, uh, you know, around the league. Jed Lowry, our guest, uh, former Major League Baseball All-Star, uh, the pride of North Salem High School. Um, we've talked about Major League Baseball to Portland in the last week, in particular with the Diamond Project uh, confirming that they are in negotiations for 164 acres in uh, in what would be Washington County. Um, how does that strike you, being a kid who grew up in, in the state of Oregon and, and played ball here and You've seen the Major League Baseball world. Is there a place in baseball for our state? I, I mean, I, if you can't tell, I'm a, you know, I'm a proud Oregonian, and um, the the idea of Major League Baseball here is just it, there couldn't be a better fit. Um, and I think that uh, you know you, you you think about the fan base that exists here. Um, the amount of people that love sport, um, the time of year when the uh, you know when the season is happening, um, the the rich history of baseball in Portland between you know Rosebuds, Mavericks, the Fuji Athletic Club, um, it's just I, I can't think uh, of a better place uh, for a major league franchise. I keep thinking about, you know, the, when I grew up, we always looked at the Pacific Northwest and we said they can't play great baseball there. It rains too much. And then Oregon State pops up and says, no, you know, look at this is a new world and look what you can do with field turf and other things. And you've traveled around and, and seen different ballparks. Let's, you know that area. You know the the area of, uh, uh, of you know, Red Tail Golf Course in that area. I mean, can you envision a ballpark over there, Jed? Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a great opportunity. I, I mean, you, you think about the amount of land that that is available over there. I, I mean, I think that's really uh, eye catching to Major League Baseball. Um, you look at the you know the trend and um, the momentum behind these multi use developments around the game. Um, you know, even even these urban ballparks. Um, you know, they're, they are buying up the land around them to, you know, enhance the game day experience for fans. I mean, you, you could look at Atlanta, you could look at the Mets, you can look at Texas, you can look at Houston. Um, the White Sox are looking at a big piece of property, um, you know, outside of downtown Tampa Bay. You know, they're, they're looking at a big piece of property right where they are now uh, is still in St. Pete. So, you know, I, I view it as a, as an opportunity for you know to, to create this like crown jewel um property 
uh, for for Portland for you know baseball for entertainment. You know you could put ball fields, you could put tra- you know have trails, green spaces, and and you know it's a, it's available to the public. Not a not a few uh, a few golfers on a daily basis. You have connections with Major League Baseball's executive office. You know Rob Manfred. How is Portland and the Portland Diamond Project viewed nationally? Give us and and it's okay to to talk uh, you know to say the to say the mean stuff if there's mean stuff there. But give me an idea. Like how are we viewed? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they are they are. Um... They are very aware of this group. They're very aware of um, uh, of the potential in in this property, um, and you know I, I think that they are very intrigued by by the market uh, and and what it would represent. Um, you know I, I think about uh, potential rivalry with uh, Seattle, and you know I, I think that you would I think you would create you know new baseball fans just in that rivalry alone. Um, and, and I just, baseball thrives in, in those regional rivalries. And, and, you know, for most people who, who aren't from the Northwest um, think that, you know, it's one big happy family. And I tell them wear a, you know, wear a duck shirt to a game in, uh, at UW or, you know, show <laughs> up to show up to Austin stadium in a UW shirt and see how that goes for you. Yeah, for sure. Jed Lowry with us. Uh, Jed. All right. Uh, yeah. You know, the news came out this week and, I had a lot of people asking me, is it real? Is it safe to believe? Um, you know, you're a baseball guy. You live here. You, you, uh, you know Major League Baseball. It, is, it, is it okay to hope? Is it safe to believe? Is this real? Uh, I, I, 100%. And I, I think it all starts with the real estate. Um, and, you know, I, I think that if that, uh, you know, that – if that comes to pass and, and you know, the, the group has the opportunity to present uh, that um, to Major League Baseball, I think it puts, a, I think it puts this, this region uh, in, a, in a really good position to, to get a team. Jed Lowry, I appreciate you joining us. It's exciting stuff. Great catching up with you. I'm going to ask you that question now that you're in Portland. I, I was doing some research, and they said, you know, one of the stories that was written about you said he's retiring – He's going back to his roots. Mm. He'll be he'll, he's a wine mm. collector. He'll be in Newburgh, and you know, ha, have the, has that come to fruition? Do you have a wine cellar? Have you become a collector and a and a wine guy? Man, yeah, no, I I love I I, I got a lot of friends in wine country here. Um, I, I've got the you know I've, I've got my wine cellar uh, in in a couple different locations. Um, I'm, I'm all in my, my, my dad was in ag, you know, it's funny growing up. My, like I said, my mom was in extension. Um, and you know, I, we, we knew, we knew all the farmers before it was, uh, you know, it was before it was cool. So, you know, being, uh, you know, being in that farm country and the wine, like it just, it, it's been, you know, full circle for me to, to come back here and, and be able to appreciate, uh, everything that this region produces. Jed Lowry, appreciate you. Thanks for joining us, giving us some of your time. Uh, we'll bring you back on. Love to love to have so many more stories that I want to uh, I want to poke around with. We didn't even get into Fenway and the ballparks and all that, but we'll do it another time. Thank you, Jed. You got it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Jed Lowry. There he is, former Major League Baseball All Star and the pride of North Salem High School. Is it safe to believe in baseball? Jed Lowry says it is. 
He says that uh, Major League Baseball uh, has a positive view of this region. I still need to see the proof. I need to see the Portland Diamond Project actually obtain the land. I need to see an investor, know who it is, who is the owner of this team or the ownership group of this team. Does it include Jed Lowry uh, when it does uh, come to fruition? Uh, really entertaining stuff. And and uh, I love just, you know, I know we were having him on. I wanted to have him on in that segment because it's got such a great arc. And uh, we have extra time there to tell the story. But it really it's a story that starts, you know, in the state capitol. And who knows where it ends with Jed Lowry uh, and, uh, and this baseball dream of the Portland Diamond Project. On tomorrow's show, get this, uh, Stephen, we got Joe Madden former Cubs manager, on the program tomorrow. So we're going to do some baseball uh, as long as we're talking about the Diamond Project. Joe Madden on the program tomorrow. Leave it here. Anna's in the studio. Everybody on their best behavior. (laughs) Mom's home. Right. (laughs) Um, Hey, uh, you have not been on air since the Portland Diamond Project announced um, their intention to purchase... 164 acres of land that is now the Red Tail Golf Course. Yeah, um, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. We just had Jed Lowry on, former uh, Major League Baseball All-Star who lives in the Portland area, to talk about it. Um, it was greeted. I was, I guess I was not all that surprised that it was greeted. The news was greeted with skepticism. You knew I was on to it because I was writing the story. City Hall didn't want me to write it, City of Portland. Diamond Project didn't want me to write it. They didn't want it out there yet. And I was working on that story a couple of few days ago. Mm-hmm. And I asked you to give it a look. Yeah. And you, so you knew what I was on to. Mm-hmm. You, I think, are a lot like people in Portland <laughs> who greeted it initially with skepticism. Yeah. But I think it's because I'm going to say you, meaning all people. Yeah. Big, ambiguous you. I think. You have been trained, you the listener, you Anna, you out there wherever you are. I think you have been trained by these efforts to bring baseball to Portland to not believe. You have had a lot of false starts. You've had the Expos, Vera Katz was mayor. You had uh, old Tom Potter. I played catch with him at City Hall. Guy couldn't even throw, play catch back and forth. I was like, we're not getting baseball. This guy can't even throw a baseball. Um, it, we had, we had, uh, are you getting the A's? Are you getting the Rays? Are you getting, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of false starts. And so I think people really need to see some transparency and proof of performance to believe this is actually something that could maybe happen. I think some of that may be true, but I think that is too trite because I, I think that Portlanders and even not just people who live in Portland, but everybody who lives in the metro area we're willing to jump on board. Like, I think you guys were talking earlier about the show. Stephen was talking about the atmosphere at the Blazers game and how alive it was and how exciting it was and how, man, if we had a team that, you know, was uh, doing well at all, we would all be filling that arena and cheering for them. I think that's really charming. And I think that we would have that same enthusiasm for baseball. I just think a lot of people hear about Red Tail <laughs> And anybody who's driven in that area goes, how the heck are they going to fit a stadium there and jam it into an area that is already so congested? Because anybody who's driven around Washington Square 
like already knows that there's a lot of residential and it's already kind of a nightmare from like three thirty, four o'clock on on a weekday. But you kind of make my point because you're saying that if you put a good team in an arena, we will cheer for it. Yeah. I'm saying to build a stadium. I've been in other markets where they try to build things. Uh-huh. I, I was in the Bay Area when they were talking about we need to move the Giants to San Francisco downtown. Right. I went to the construction site when they were building it and stood in the construction site and wrote about it, right? Like, right. I've seen the ambition and the vision it takes to pull it off. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to tell you that I'm saying, I think we're saying the same thing. I'm saying you need to show people in Portland the product before they'll get excited about it because they cannot believe in the vision. You're saying if they get in the arena and they see something they Mm -hmm. like, they'll cheer for it. Yeah. I'm saying you have to start cheering and you have to have enthusiasm before you see it. You have to anticipate it. And I think it's why people here are not able to take that leap because they feel burned. I don't know if it's a matter of us feeling burned. And I don't want to be lumped with a bunch of people and labeled small-minded or, negative Nellies or unambitious or Karens not, or not visionary like I really as somebody who grew up here I'm going to bristle at any of those labels because I just simply disagree but the part I agree here is that for us to all jump on board and to like conceptually visualize a baseball park a major league baseball park in that area of the metro uh proletan area we we need to see how it would work sure i need a schematic right i need to see how the You're highway point. how like 217 or all of the arterials around yeah. the park will be widened to accommodate this and it's just a pragmatic thing well of course but it, i'm saying that you know you need to see schematics yeah. People in San Francisco didn't. They went, okay, we'll we'll do it. It sounds like you guys have a great plan. And, you know, and knowing but that... They, what, where did they put the ballpark? In though? the Embarcadero, it... in the most congested area of San Francisco. They plopped down a ballpark where there was not a parking lot to be seen. And, and I said, how in the world are they going to park here? Okay. And they went, we'll figure it out logistically. And right. they did. They created Caltrain. It runs right in front of the stadium. People park miles and miles away. They jump on the train, catch the train to the ballpark. Mm-hmm. But I do think I think already Highway 26 and 217 have problems. They have problems now. I don't want to be on 217 at five o'clock right. on a Friday. Right. It right. has a problem now. Sure. There's a problem that needs to be fixed, regardless if a baseball ballpark is going to get built. And you're saying actually putting in a baseball park would somehow make it better it because it would accelerate yes. the process of making that area and getting around in that area better. It forces the city of Beaverton, the city of Tigard, the state of Oregon, ODOT, County, Washington County, to all go, A, we have a problem that's an existing problem. We are about to funnel in for 81 home dates, you know, a crowd of 35,000 people into that area. Like you say that, and, and my eyebrows okay. shoot up off my head. Okay, 81 home dates, how do we do this? And, you know, I'm telling you that there will have to be some infrastructure. There will have to be some 
So somebody's going to have to go, hey, we need uh, more infrastructure, more ability to get people in. Could we extend the max lines to run right to the stadium? That way people are getting on the max wherever they're is near to their house and they're riding it to the ballpark. You know, what can you do from an infrastructure standpoint? And, oh, by the way, on the 278 days that there isn't a game there, guess what? The traffic is better for everybody who's going I don't want to be on that freeway at 5 o'clock on a Friday. That doesn't exist anymore, and suddenly you have a better city, a better region. People said the same thing about Atlanta when they said, hey, we want to put a ballpark in Cobb County. People in Cobb County were like, where are they going to park? How are they going to get to the game? This is going to be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I, I found story about the World Series, and there was a story written when the Braves were in the World Series, and it was about what a success and how the traffic nightmares that everyone anticipated, they they were fixed, and it was it's just a wonderful success story on how you build a ballpark in a in a uh, suburban area, and you create something that a development that really wins. But yeah, yeah, of course they're going to have to do something. You can't like you know helicopter people into the stadium. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. going to have to like maybe you know. I, I guess the max line was the max line supposed to have did they did they have bigger vision for the max line than what it's become? Uh, I gotta think they did. I don't remember. Like it just seems to dead end in certain places. Like maybe the max line ends up being like you know like what Caltrain is to the San Francisco Giants Oracle Park. Like it it I was shocked the first time I went to a game at what in downtown San Francisco for a Giants game at the crowd and how deft the crowd was at getting to the stadium without driving. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And I was like, "What? how do I get to the game? My friends are like, this is what you want to do. <laughs> you you uh, pull off anywhere on Highway 101 and jump on Caltrain. Uh-huh. Cost you like two bucks. Yeah. And jump on at any of the stops, and you can ride it all the way to San Francisco right into the stadium. And so at each stop, the trains fill up more and more with Giants fans yeah. all the way there, all the way to the stadium. Right. So it was really kind of a, uh, you know, but look, I'm not saying that's what has to happen here. I don't know. I'm not putting, I'm not putting, uh, you know, my brain power into figuring out how they do no, I mean, 217 and like, 26. I appreciate your perspective because I think it is important to hear from people who have lived in other cities, who've seen this transition happen. Because it is, there is a little bit of like Willy Wonka here where like it can happen. There has to be some visionary people and a lot of thought putting in put into the infrastructure and design and transportation. But I, I guess I am in the group that's like, I need to be shown and told how this would work. And it's not because I don't want Major League Baseball here. I, I, I love this city and I would love to have a Major League Baseball team here as just another notch of like, hey, we're Portland, we matter. I actually would love if the effort expanded to more of like an Oregon or regional thing. Because I, I, you know, like MLB to PDX, it's catchy, but I think that you would garner maybe more support if it was more of a region-wide effort, kind of like they've done in Utah. You April know, it's of not 20, just Salt Lake. April of 2013, Larry Bear, who was then the... Uh, president of the San Francisco Giants came to Portland to give a talk. I went to see him and they had the chan- they had the World Series trophy, they were coming off a World Series. Mm-hmm. I went to see the talk and I went to interview Bear because he was the visionary guy who said ballpark downtown San Francisco, forget Candlestick Park, let's go right to the heart of San Francisco. Everybody in the Bay Area was going, you need to go to the South Bay. 
There's less traffic in the South Bay. It's easier in the South Bay. And he said, no, we want to be in San Francisco. And, and it was the most expensive real estate. It was a privately funded ballpark. They asked for no public dollars. They privately funded it. And I'm looking at the column that I wrote about it right now. Because remember, people may remember the Giants were headed to Florida. They were going to move mm-hmm. to Florida. Bob Lurie, the owner of the Giants, was going to move him to Florida. And, and Larry Bear took questions. And it was he was speaking at the University of Portland. Okay. He took questions from the audience, and a kid in the question asked him a uh, in the audience asked him a great question. Kid asked him, "Did you ever think about failing?" Because he had to put together a stadium project, privately funded in a congested area of San Francisco, and people, you know, I'm sure there were naysayers. Sure. And Larry Bear's answer here it is. He said, "Quote every day, <laughs> I was motivated by fear. I did not want to be a failure." And I wrote a column saying, where is Portland's Larry Bear? Mm-hmm. Where is the person who is going to galvanize a city, challenge the uh, malaise that we have towards big city projects? Where is the person who's going to pull together the unthinkable project? It's a pipe dream. It is, by definition. Hey, let's build a billion-dollar stadium in an area where people are like, anti let's not do this let's no let's just do what we always do we're fine we're good you know it let's just it, it's it's going to take somebody taking a big swing and they may face plant they may fail but i'm just glad that somebody's trying and trying I to do too. something i am glad i'm glad to yeah we'll see let's take some phone calls 503-417-7575 weigh in I imagine that the conversation that Anna and I were having in the last segment, I imagine it happening in dinner table discussions across the state of Oregon in the last couple days. I think it's very easy to say it's never going to happen. They're never going to be. It's not. It's a, it, 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 it might, you might be right. But maybe try to shift your mindset to, okay, well, how do you solve the problem that, or the concern that you have? Instead of just saying, "Yeah, nah, I can't see it," I I think people I'm not struggle. Saying, I'm not, you can't paint me into a corner like that. I'm not saying it could never happen. Yeah, I'm just saying I'm having a hard time visualizing it in that specific area. And I and I'm even saying I want it to happen. Right, right, right. But like, short of Elon Musk coming in and like designing a hyperloop Ooh. around the stadium. Okay, let's talk for That's transportation. It's one idea. Like I, I, I need to be shown. I'm a visual person, and I think a lot of us are. I need to be shown. Right. That's what I said. <laughs> I said you need to see it. That's what I said, and you said oh. no. That's trite. That's what you said. By the way. I just imagine, like, 1941, Joe DiMaggio, you know, he's in spring training, saying, you know, I, I think I might try to hit in 56 straight games this year. I don't think so. I can't. I got a hard time seeing that happen. Stop you know? it. I am not a dream killer, and neither is anyone else who is asking logical questions about how this stadium that's supposed to seat how many people? About 35,000 okay. or so. Okay, yeah. now this stadium seating 35,000 is going to be I don't know. I haven't seen the stadium. But... Shoehorned into, into a... southwest yeah, Portland. But it's on 164 acres. A stadium's like 16 acres. Okay, here's Anna. 
Anna in uh, 1936 in Berlin. Stop She's it. crossing the street. She gets into an elevator and finds Jesse Owens in the elevator. And Jesse Owens says, you know what? I'm about to win four gold medals. I'm going to run the 100 meters faster than anybody in the world right in front of Hitler. And Anna's, Anna's like, eh, I don't think so. I got to see it to believe it. Let's go to the phone line. so unfair. Let's go to the phone so lines. unfair. Pat is on McLaughlin Boulevard. Pat. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, you guys. This is great. And I'll tell you, um, you know, as far as Anna's concerned, if you always say something's going to happen, not happen, it won't. If Everybody can look for problems, but if you just build it, they'll come. But that's not why I called. Okay. If you go back to 1961 or 1962, the Delta Dome, those yes. Minnesota Vikings were coming to Portland, Oregon, and instead they went to Minnesota. Yep. It all our stuff. The problems we've had with sports all started right there. They voted it down by 450 votes, I believe it was. And now we've got nothing, and we've never tried to get anything. If it wasn't for Harry Glickman, we wouldn't have the Blazers either. I mean, if you just build it, they will come. You'll, you know, um, it, 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 it's, it's normal human behavior. If you go to, like, Boston, you know, with, with their stadium, or you go to, to Soldier Field, you know, there's no parking, very little around those places, but yet they make it work. And, yeah. and I took Anna to Fenway. Anna, remember walking up to Fenway Park? I, I do. And you were looking around going, wow, this is like right in the middle of a neighborhood. You know? <laughs> I do. And now you're going, no, it's I just can't see it. <laughs> it's not possible. But I understand. I can't see it's not possible. I understand. And he's right about the Delta Dome. It, 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 I didn't know that. It, did not, it was defeated. Uh, the final vote. In was defeated 113,832 to 102,281. And there were several runs at this thing. And I, I remember talking to Harry Glickman about the Delta Dome. He believed that we would have, we would have had the Seahawks instead of Seattle. Mm. And, uh, you know, for our Seahawks fans out there, you would have had NFL in Portland. Um, and, you know, Harry Glickman told me something else. I, I'll, be, I'll be candid with you. I had a private conversation with Harry a couple of years before he died. And... Harry called me and he said, come have coffee with me. And I met him at Starbucks in uh, the Pearl District, not far from the condo that he lived in. He arrived in a wheelchair. He was being pushed in a wheelchair by a nurse. And we sat and had coffee. In the course of the conversation, Harry said to me, you need a, they're going to need an ownership group with a lot of money. Check. They're going to need somebody in government, either at the state level county level or city level that will champion the project Check and then me. he said the third thing they're going to need is he said they're going to need you you he said they're going to need somebody in media who has a platform who is willing to talk about it and keep it a topic of conversation he says you don't need to be a homer you don't need to be a shill for somebody but he says every he says they're going to get opposition and he told me that in that conversation. And I'm not saying I'm fulfilling Harry Glickman's dream here today. I'm not. But well, he's a smart man. I am willing to talk about it because I think, um, you know, it's very easy just to go, it's never going to happen, and be a Karen about it. Which is not what I'm doing or saying. All right. Tony in Vancouver. Go ahead, Tony. <laughs> John, it's the same old argument. We can't do anything here because we need money for the school. Let me tell you something. I worked with a school district as a custodial supervisor for 10 years. 
those schools that were built at the turn of the century, you know, Franklin High School was built in 1911. They got pictures in the office of the horses and trailers carrying the materials to build it. There's pipes encapsulated, asbestos pipes, you know, so where's this money going that they're talking about for schools? Seattle built two major stadiums downtown, not in the suburbs, in the heart of the city. Publicly financed. Those, those weren't built by the owners of the teams. Paul Allen didn't build them like he did the Motor Center. Seattle can get done. Why can't Portland get it done? It's the age-old argument about schools. I ain't seen no new schools in this town. Yeah. So, so well, what's, the, what's the story? But I think I think those things all can happen. Like, I think you can have good schools and a stadium. I think you can address homelessness, drug abuse, mental health issues, and have a stadium. And, in fact, if you think bigger, like, you know, and I think, you know, I think part of the reason that there seems to be some support for this from Mayor Ted Wheeler in Portland and, and Governor uh, the governor, Tina Kotek, is that I think they see opportunity to maybe parlay uh, a stadium tax into helping s- some other causes like you can do that you can use a stadium in a lot of ways you know obviously it's going to create jobs and it's going to create tax revenue and if you have a team you know as the blazers players pay income tax and as visiting players who play a game like damian lillard had to pay income tax last night for the state of oregon because he was a visiting player you know earning money in the state of oregon last night and so that's how it works and so you're going to have an opportunity, I think, to maybe do some other things if you if you have the vision. But I'm not saying this is going to happen. It's like when I say it's a pipe dream, I mean, it. you know, it, is it a hundred to one shot? Is it a thousand to one shot? I'm willing to look and see what they do. I want to see them. I want to see the Diamond Project purchase the land. That's step one. I want to see who's the billionaire owner who was in the meeting on Friday at City Hall. Somebody from the Bay Area who has a tech background was in that meeting with Mayor Ted Wheeler on Friday at City Hall. That person, that money person, who is it? Do they have the pockets deep enough to build this development and attract a team that's going to cost you a billion dollars? You know, is this there is there's a billionaire somewhere in this mix? Who is it? Is that person got the pockets for it? And then thirdly, will baseball even consider Portland, or are they using Portland? To get what they really want somewhere else, but that's not a that's not a question that um, the Diamond Project can answer. They've got to do step one and two in order to find out if they're being used as a stalking horse. Bruce is in Portland, wants to talk about this. Bruce, go ahead. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, first of all, uh, baseball, like you said, Fenway only takes up eight acres. You know, most stadiums take about nine, ten, somewhere in there. Um, everybody thinks it's, oh, it's a ballpark going, so it's going to be way more than that. If you go to Atlanta or Google what Atlanta has done down there, it's going to be mixed use, similar to what they've accomplished down there. That was I went there last year, and it was it was well done, beautiful area. You want to go there. But <laughs> to Anna's point, I need to see infrastructure plans, too, because right now 217 sure. is under construction, obviously. It's being, I mean, it's not to say that it can't be done. There's a max line right on the other side of 217. It's getting arteries over there. It's getting infrastructure in place. I need to see some of that. I would love to see baseball come here. I'm, I'm a big sports fan, obviously. I'm listening to yep. your show and, uh, and we, others. Um, Bruce, we got a break. Anna, we go, got a go yeah. to any arena in town, any arena anywhere. You know, yep. is is there's crowding issues and there's infrastructure anywhere. All right, more calls coming up. 
Michael Phelps in the Olympic pool, about to swim, set a record. Anna whispering from the crowd, I'm going to need to see it to believe it. (laughs) It's so wrong. That is a mischaracterization of what I'm saying about baseball. I, you know, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> thinking about, you know, I got this idea for a Facebook a platform. We're all going to be connected digitally. And the Zuck says, uh, Anna, is this a good idea? I'm going to need to see it. I'm going to need to see some infrastructure. <laughs> Sounds like a pipe dream. Uh, uh, I th- no, I don't blame people. I my point was, I think people have been jerked around, and I think people have had a lot of false starts. And I think it's really hard when you have, uh, yeah, you know, you're essentially your trust in in ideas like that have been burned if you're if you're in this region, and you've seen false starts and political leaders who have said made big promises and not delivered and. This group or that group trying to create a big idea, you're going to need to see some proof of performance along the way. Uh, let's take a phone call or two, and then we'll go right into the 5 at 5. Dre in Portland's been holding. Dre, we going to a baseball game or what? I hope so, or football. But i, I got to say, one of, one of the first things a, per, a person does when they're thinking about getting in shape is they make getting in shape a priority. You know what I mean, Jay? Until the city of Portland is serious about making anything really come to life, it has to become a priority. There has to be some type of long-term vision with it. I heard somebody mention the schools. It's not the schools. It's the priority of our government. What is our priority? We can get a team. Anything is possible. I can get in shape tomorrow if I make it a priority. Thanks, Jay. I love that. Dre's got a little George Kittle in him. George Kittle walking the sideline at halftime of the 49er game going, it's going to be awesome at the end of the game. I'm going to be able to say, well, they had us at halftime. But look at us now. Um, I, I Look, I, I, I don't think it costs you any money. It costs you a little hope. But, you know, to try to believe or try to expand your mind in the idea of, you know, NHL coming to Portland or Major League Baseball coming to Portland or – the Blazers winning a championship, uh, you know, or the Oregon State finding a home in another conference. I think it's really easy. Oregon going to the Big Ten. I think it's really easy to be a naysayer. And I don't mean this, Anna, like in all seriousness. Like, I, I think you're playing an important role on the show because I think you speak for a lot of people out there that are having a hard time seeing that ballpark at that Red Tail facility uh, on that property, 164 acres. And I think um, it's really easy to say it won't work instead of going let's put some thought into solving each of these problems how can it work what can they do but that's up to them that's up to the diamond project it's up to their developers it's up to their stadium designers i i just my point was i think people are going to need to see it Mm -hmm. and they're going to need to see oh there was an offer of 55 million dollars made for this property Portland City Council and the mayor voted 5 nothing to sell this to the Diamond Project. They now have control of the property. You're going to need to see that. Not just, hey, they're in negotiations. Like, you know, that's not enough for you, is it? They're in negotiations. No, it's definitely not enough. I think people can, I mean, when there was talk about, um, you know, 
uh, along the water, you know, along one of the terminals or whatever. Terminal 2. Terminal 2. I think people could envision that because it's like, okay, that's an industrial area. I could see where they could stick a ballpark there. There would be parking. Lloyd Center, uh, okay, I could I could see why they considered it because it's along a lot of public transportation routes so people could park elsewhere and get in. But you kind of yeah. run into that same issue where adjacent to that is a lot of residential area. And I don't, I don't know, is it an area that we would want a baseball park in? And then, and then now we're now we're talking about red tail. It's not that I don't want it baseball here. I badly no, 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 want I know it. that. I, I think that it would be an incredible economic boost um, to the entire area uh, for years and years to come. And like one of the callers said, like if it weren't for Glickman, we wouldn't even have the Blazers. Like I wish we had an NFL team. Let's not stop just at baseball. Thank God for Harry Glickman. You know, we've got um, a pretty vibrant uh, population. Like I think if you look at the population of Portland, people are still moving to the area. People, young people are still attracted to the city. I would think that for entities like the NFL and Major League Baseball who are looking at the long game, this is a population that could support sports like that, professional sports like that, over decades. Uh, and yet, when I wrote about it the other day, I looked at the comments. I just kind of read through the comments on johnconzano.com, and a lot of the comments were, hey, this market won't support it. Hey, this will never happen. We can't get by the politics. It was it was just point, bullet point by bullet point, no, 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 no. And and I thought to myself, gosh, that is that is like a tidal wave of negativity Mm -hmm. and on the other side of it you know the portland diamond project sitting there going hey how do we solve these problems right you know who's on our development team on our design team who from the city can we count on who from the county can we count on and and i actually think moving outside of the city of portland Mm -hmm. but buying that property from portland is a is a makes it easier because now you're not dealing with the portland city council and the mayor and whoever the mayor is going to be five years from now ten years from now you're dealing with the Beaverton mayor mm-hmm. and the Tigard mayor who's adjacent and mm-hmm. you're dealing with Washington County in the state of Oregon. And for all of us who have long been frustrated with politics in Portland, I think you get the idea that the team could have the name Portland on it, just like the Atlanta Braves do, mm-hmm. but you're in Cobb County, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You're not in Portland. You're not in you know downtown Atlanta and you don't have to deal with kind of that part of the equation. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. People ask, is it going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. But, I, but I can tell you, I'm going to devote some time talking about it because Harry Glickman told me to talk about it. And, that, and we're going to do that. <laughs> All right? Let's play The Five at Five. We got the five biggest, baddest stories. Go ahead. The Five at Five. Number one. Hmm, some rumbles about Chip Kelly. So... Jeremy Fowler on ESPN is saying that he's a potential candidate for the commander's uh, offensive coordinator under the new head coach, Dan Quinn, for sources. Uh, Kelly, of course, a two-time NFL head coach, is believed to have interest in returning to the league (laughs) and leaving UCLA, and Washington will consider talking with him. Meantime, Ian Rappaport saying that the Raiders have already interviewed with Chip Kelly at least twice for their vacant offensive coordinator job under Antonio Pierce. Sounds like he's interested in getting out of the college game. That surprises me because, you know, he has, I think, talked about really being happy where he's living Mm -hmm. and, you know, happy where he's at. But maybe like David Shaw, 
And Nick Saban and some others, Chip Kelly's tired of this portal and NIL and all that stuff. If Chip Kelly leaves, John, is this going to be another scenario where uh, Jonathan Smith is thinking, man, did I leave early? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of Martin Jarman. It was everything I could do, as Anna was talking about that, to not like reach out to Martin Jarman and be like, what's your move if Chip Kelly goes? You know, and I kind of am left thinking about UCLA and thinking like, what do they do? Because who wants that job? That's not. I mean, going to the Big Ten, you're what the ninth best team in that conference. Like, I mean, is that a great job? You're at a basketball school going into the Big Ten. Have fun with that, and you know, I think somebody would take it because you know it's going to pay somebody five, six, seven million dollars a year. But you know, you're not in the right time of the hiring cycle. Everybody, there's already been movement. You can't go get Brett Brennan or Jed Fish. They've already taken jobs. You know, Jonathan Smith's at Michigan State. It's You're left trying to, I think, appoint an interim coach for a year and waiting for the hiring cycle to come back around. And it would be a very precarious position for UCLA if this, uh, this comes true. Number two. Well, let's keep it uh, in Southern California since we're talking about Chip Kelly. I was very amused by this story. Jim Harbaugh is uh, looking forward to his move to Southern California, taking on that role of the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. But before moving into a house, he says he plans to drive his RV to California (laughs) and camp out in it near the Chargers facility for a few months. He says he wants to drive it out there, go to a trailer park down by the water or by Disneyland, the two that he's researched that are close to the facility, and he's going to Jim Rockford it for the next couple of months until they move to the new facility. I like it, and uh, I like to see what this RV looks like, because in my mind, it's Clark Griswold's RV, you know, in uh, the vacation uh, movies <laughs> with Chevy Chase. So, But I, I, I got to think he's got a really cool RV. He's also kind of a quirky guy. You think? You know, he's really quirky and different. 60-year-old Jim Harbaugh, back in the NFL, back with the Chargers where he played as a player. Not in San Diego, though, but in Los Angeles. Uh, I think he's going to win there. I remember, uh, you know, I saw one of the early quotes when he met uh, Justin Herbert, talked to him on the phone, said he was nervous talking to Justin Herbert. Hmm. Harbaugh knows exactly what to say. He knows the game to play. He's not nervous, but he's telling people he he was starstruck talking with Justin Herbert. He's trying to build him up, give him some confidence, public, you know, basically publicly saying, you know, he's the guy, not me. Uh, Jim Harbaugh's smart. It will not be long before the Chargers are in the playoffs competing at a high level, and it will not be long before he is sniffing around a Super Bowl. I really believe that. I think I think the charge if you're a Chargers fan, you gotta be really happy right now. Number three. Did you hear about what Baltimore Ravens tight end Mark Andrews did? Did you already talk about this? I did, but go do it again because we did it really early in the show. Okay. He saved a woman's life, or at least he helped. He was on a flight from uh, Baltimore to Phoenix and this woman was having a medical emergency. Now, Andrews himself is diabetic, like type one diabetic, and he helped the medical professionals that happened to be on board work out that the issue was due to low blood sugar. Like he was on the flight and he produced his own diabetic testing kit. Her heart rate eventually stabilized and uh, they got her the help that she needed. Best tweet I saw today about this came from uh, a guy named Chuck who said, Breaking news, 
Lamar Jackson very indirectly saves a woman's life by throwing an interception in triple coverage. <laughs> the Ravens not being at the Super Bowl. Andrews is on the plane. Butterfly effect. It's a good story. There was another guy who was on the flight that said, a man in the aisle seat popped up. Could it be your blood sugar? I have a diabetic testing kit. Turns out it was tight end Mark Andrews. There you go. Mark Andrews got it done. Number four. Um... A lot of people are complaining about LeBron James and Anthony Davis being ruled out for the game against the Celtics tonight. James won't play due to a left ankle injury. Davis will sit out because of an Achilles issue and some left hip spasms. And that's just not sitting well with a lot of fans. Uh, this is going to be a TNT nationally televised game. Oh. And people are just criticizing the Lakers for tanking and load management. These big stars sit it out. Load management. Yeah, that's where you get the attention of Adam Silver, the league commissioner, when you start sitting when television's watching. They don't care about the normal folks who are going to games and buying tickets, but when uh, their TV partners complain. You better believe sponsors and uh, and uh, television executives will get the uh, phone number of Adam Silver. And uh, Stephen, where do you stand on this? Um, legit injuries, or are they being too delicate with these two guys? Um, I think with these two guys, there's probably some legit injuries. Anthony Davis is always injured. LeBron is getting to that age where he's always injured as well. I just, it is tough because. Now our our initial thoughts always for every injury is oh that's that's fake like it's just load management but at the but yeah. at the same time like there's a lot of instances where it is load management and now the players are starting to push back on the whole 65 game played rule to win an award you know Draymond Green's doing that Ty- Tyrese Halliburton has been doing that it's gonna cost him some money like in Halliburton's case it could cost him 40 million dollars if he doesn't play 65 games but at the same time like it's also their fault this this is what they've been doing the trend has been. I'm not going to play. I'm going to load manage myself. And it got to be a problem where TV got mad. And it's all about the money. It's all about TV. So I, I'm i on the NBA side of this. They need to suit up and play. Like, even last night, like, my my oldest son goes, hey, is, is Giannis playing tonight? Like, it shouldn't even be a question. It's like, yeah, you go see the Bucks. Yeah. You want to see Giannis. But he, he, at nine years old, already understands and questions like, oh, is he actually going to play? Do I get to see him? And then he's excited when he sees him. I used to watch the Harlem Globetrotters when I was a kid on ABC's Wide World of Sports awesome show you know curly nail goose tatum played against the washington generals you know the you know the globetrotters mm-hmm. they're they're on abc's wide world of sports and suddenly they were coming to the oakland coliseum which is about an hour and 15 minutes from my parents house and so me uh i had a friend my friend chris his parents got tickets mm-hmm. and they got me a ticket and we were so excited and we went all the way to oakland through traffic we parked the car. We got into the Coliseum. We sat in our seats. Um, I don't even know if I was sitting. You know, I was so excited to see the Globetrotters. And the Globetrotters came out, and I'm like, where's Curly Neal? And they were like, well, he's at the age where there's two games today. He's only going to play in the afternoon game, not the morning game. <laughs> Brutal. Load management is crap. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time, and it needs to stop. Curly Neal, I needed to see you dribble and shoot half-court hook shots and uh, you know all that tomfoolery and ballyhoo that goes on during uh, during the Globetrotters <laughs> They were just in show. town. Number five. Finally. Oh, this is number five already. Okay, I got to cut one then. Um, I like this story. 
Uh, Tom Moore, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive consultant, uh, is now 85. Okay. He's been alive for around 80% of the NFL's history, and he's not done. So he's going to be returning for a 46th NFL coaching season. Wow. And uh, he's coming back. He's coming back with the Buccaneers coaching staff in 2024. He was born in 1938. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's he's yeah. 85 years old. Yeah. He went to college in 1958, and he's still working in the NFL. Can I list the places he's worked as a coach? Sure. Iowa, Dayton, Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, Minnesota, the New York Stars, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Minnesota Vikings, Detroit Lions, New Orleans Saints, the Colts, the Colts again, the Jets, the Titans, the Cardinals, and now the Buccaneers. Do you think he could name all those? Or has he forgotten <laughs> Maybe he'd skip. We need to get him on the show. Yeah, definitely. His coaching career, uh, it was out there today, is older than half of the coaches in the league. Oh, that's phenomenal. <laughs> well, he joins the NFL. You know, with the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1977, he didn't come in at a bad time to be with the Steelers. Probably got the bug. What was your sixth story, the one you had to cut? The sixth story was uh, a soccer player who called U.S. soccer fans stupid. Oh, name calling? Really? Well, I mean, she, she the, her point was that American soccer fans, most of them aren't, okay, she didn't say stupid. She said most of them aren't smart. So this is the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team captain, Lindsey Horan. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I just don't think this is wise. Like, she's, she did this interview with The Athletic where she went into detail about why it bothers her that many opinions of fans are shaped by television analysts. So that she's saying soccer fans, they're not smart, most of them. They don't know the game. They don't understand. I think she, most people, I think she's talking more about United States sports fans don't understand soccer. I think the diehard soccer fans know soccer. But I think there's a lot of us, I'll put myself in it, who are peripheral soccer fans, like we'll watch the World Cup, and we don't live it, breathe it, and know it like other fans. Like this guy right here uh, that I'm about to play a cut from. United States lost to Ghana, all right, in 2010. U.S. soccer team in the round of 16. This fan. It's the World Cup. Uh, we, like, it's the World Cup, bro. We had a chance. We had a, we had a, we had a chance. The second year we lost to Ghana. The second year. Why do we always give up the goal at the last minute? If you don't watch soccer, this is what it means to us. This is what it means to us. We should have won this game. We might be dumb when it comes to soccer. Might, is it okay? But doesn't that the American way to like just not watch something, jump in at the biggest moments, and act yeah. like we're all experts? Like the Olympics, yeah. we're all experts on curling, handball. You know, yeah. oh, I can't. We win in curling, damn it! Well, be I the could best do handball curling. team in the world. I could do curling, but I, I think you know we might be dumb when it comes to soccer, but we're good looking. But she's not even saying just American sports fans in general. She specifically said American soccer fans, most of them aren't smart. But she lumped her mom into it. She said that, you know, my mom does it. She says, my mom says, Julie Foudy said you had a good game. And I'm here going, no, I was, I was terrible today. Oh, I think athletes sometimes don't have that perspective. 
you know, like I, I'll be honest, like my, you know, I'm a I'm a sports guy. I go to a football game when I'm in high school with my mom. She's yelling at the official, and I'm like, she doesn't know what she's yelling at. She's just a mom who really cares about her kid, my younger brother, who happens to be on the field. Yeah, but if you're playing in a sport where this that is desperately trying to get widespread popularity. That's a good point. I, I, I just don't know if it's a great idea to be criticizing your fans. You're all dumb. Now watch us. <laughs> is that what she's saying? I mean, you'd have to read, you know, the headline is bad. When you read what she actually says, it's yeah. not as bad. But you you have to understand, if you're a professional athlete, how that's going to be taken yeah. and that people generally only read the headlines. That's now. a great point. You're right about this one. Oh, thanks. You got this one right. Thanks. All right. Wait. I might be a dream killer of MLB, <laughs> but I'm right on this point. I got a text from uh, my friend Ferretti. Who said, uh, you know, this is uh, entertaining radio, but you might be divorced by 6 (laughs) o'clock. We'll see how this goes. All right, we got Punch It Audio coming up. Leave it here. I just love the stories coming out of uh, Arizona. Dr. Robert Robbins, Bobby Robbins, the uh, president of Arizona, is under fire because his university had a hole in the budget of about $240 million. Now he's saying, you know, there was a miscalculation which is ironic if you think about it. You're Basically, they're saying they miscalculated the miscalculation. And so they, they're saying that it's more like $170 million. And uh, I'm still going, that's not a good idea. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing for a university president. Uh, keep an eye on that. I think that he will. Uh, it will end with Robert Robbins out of a job. Uh, keep an eye on it. Um, all right, let's play some punch and audio. we got to talk about the Super Bowl. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Travis Kelsey having a hell of a season. Is he the best tight end ever? And is he having one of his best seasons ever? Jason Garrett talking about Travis Kelsey and why he's a tough matchup, tougher than Rob Gronkowski. Punch it. Uh, you know, for for me, I think it's more challenging to defend Kelsey j- just because uh, he's a little bit more elusive. Uh, I think he's probably a better route runner. Um, and so, you know, that matchup is hard, but it's the same problem. You put Gronk over there, his size, his ability to just go get a ball – is is really unprecedented at the position. So, you know, they're both, both incredible players. Gun to my head, I'd take Kelsey. That's probably because he was 11 for 11 the other day <laughs> in my most recent memory. But uh, they're both incredible. Kelsey has 93 catches this season. 93. 984 receiving yards. Uh, a fantastic season. Uh, but my memories of Kelsey this year... A little bit, few drops that, you know, I've seen there, there were a couple of drops in there and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I don't know. I, he's a fantastic player. Two great tight ends in this game with Kelsey and George Kittle. I think both quarterbacks lean heavily on the tight ends. Could we have a tight end be a Super Bowl MVP? You know, it's, it's normally a position reserved for, 
quarter or an honor reserved for quarterbacks, sometimes a running back, but a tight end has never been a Super Bowl MVP. Could we get a Super Bowl MVP tight end, Stephen? Kelsey or Kittle? I think I think if out of those two, it's actually George Kittle would be a better chance because I believe even if Kelsey were to have like an unbelievable game, Patrick Mahomes is going to get the credit for it. Where if Kittle, let's say he has you know seven catches, a hundred yards, and two touchdowns, the media may not give the credit to Brock Purdy. They may just say, "Hey, man, look, you know what? Purdy is what he is, but he has all his talent around him and give it to George Kittle." So I actually think out of those two. George Kittle has a better chance of getting an MVP than Travis Kelsey, but obviously I think Kelsey uh, is, is a better player still, even at this point, over George Kittle. Peyton Manning on the Pat McAfee Show talking about Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy in the Super Bowl. What do they thrive on? Here's Peyton Manning punching. I think we've learned don't tell Patrick Mahomes that he can't do something. Oh, you can't win in Buffalo? Watch this. No way you can win in Baltimore in AFC Championship. Watch this. And then uh, everybody kind of wanted to write the Niners off after the Baltimore game. And, you know, look, Green Bay at halftime, I think everybody said uh, this game's over. The same for the Detroit game. And all they do is just keep fighting and keep coming back. And what Brock Purdy, all he does is get it done. He's calm and cool. I'm waiting to see Brock Purdy sweat. I haven't seen him sweat yet. He just looks as, as calm and collected in the pocket as Joe Montana. Brock Purdy, calm and collected. Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes, he's a wizard out there. I think it's going to be a great game. Peyton Manning went on to say that, you know, he expected a he expects a very offensive game. And he thinks that if you're Kyle Shanahan, you'd rather be the underdog in this game. Niners favored by two. Here's Peyton Manning. Punch it. I don't think Kyle Shanahan is super excited about the Niners being favorites. I think he'd like to have some say in that and make and I'm not sure why people keep picking against the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes as underdogs, but I know he likes that. I know he has that laminated in the locker room, bulletin board material. We're the underdogs. They're going to you know, channel that. So, look, I, it's been proven that I'm a bad predictor, so I'm not about to make a prediction. I think it's going to be a heck of a game. I think it's going to be high scoring. I do. I think it's going to be an offensive game, which is, which is great. High scoring offensive game. Keep an eye on it. Kyle Shanahan. He uh, he was asked about the first Super Bowl experience that he had and how the uh, the experience a few years ago might help his team. Here's his answer. Punch it. I mean, I think all those guys, for the most part, were young guys. and It was their first one. And I think um, always when you go your first time, you experience a lot of stuff. But I think when you go your second time, you know all the stuff you experienced. It's about one thing. It's about what happens in those three hours. And uh, I think it's real cool for those guys who have gone to be able to talk to players who it's their first time kind of help them not get caught up in stuff, especially guys who are rookies and guys like Debo and things like that. So um, having experience always helps. Experience helps. I do think it's a little bit of a equalizer. It's not, you know, it's not like winning the game, but it's a little bit of an equalizer that they have been there. Some of the bright lights, media day on Tuesday, some of the formalities of the week and the run-up to the Super Bowl won't seem as daunting. They'll have been there before. Um, but I'm not going to call it an advantage because the guy on the other side and the team on the other side, hell, they were there last year and won it. Yeah, you know, it's that's a huge advantage. Cam Newton says Brock Purdy is not the best player on his team. Might not be the tenth best player on his team, but Cam Newton, uh, he's, he's rolling, walking back some of the hey, Brock Purdy sucks talk. Punch it. I've never said that Brock Purdy was trash. What I did say 
is Brock Parody is a game manager. That's not hate. That's just what I feel to be facts. But I still reserve the right to say this. To be labeled a game changer, Brock Parody has to be the best player on the offensive side of the ball. Hmm. And that's not the case. And who's the best player? T Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> Man, look, I ain't recanting shit. And if you really want to just be honest, if you add in the defensive talent and you add in the offensive talent, Brock Parity is the 10th best player on this team. Okay, cool. Did he have a great game? Yes. Is yes. he been playing out of his mind? Yes. Is he a quarterback that's hot? Yes. yes. But he's still the 10th best player on his team. Let's see what happens on game day. I, I appreciate what everybody's saying, too, when they make this about quarterbacks because you do look at the history of the Super Bowl and you see you tend to see great quarterbacks winning this game. If it comes down to who's the better quarterback, Chiefs are going to win the game. You would not take Brock Purdy in a million drafts ahead of Patrick Mahomes. So, you know, I think really the emphasis for the 49ers is not like, you know, can Brock Purdy play out of his mind? No. The emphasis is, can you make this game not about Brock Purdy having to win it for you? Can you win it on defense? Can you win it with George Kittle? Can you win it with Debo Samuel? Can you win it with running the football with Christian McCaffrey? If you're talking about those things at halftime and at the end of the game, instead of, you know, did Brock Purdy do enough, you're going to be in a good position. Niners' window, though, feels a little tenuous with the salaries. This team's getting expensive. Brian Windhorst, he is the LeBron expert. Talking here about LeBron being a free agent at the end of the season. What in the world is going on with LeBron? Here's Windhorst. Punch it. I'm just going to make a couple of statements of fact. I'm just going to make them as fact, and I'm not implying anything. I'm not implying I have any knowledge. I'm just going to make statements of fact, so don't run with them, okay? LeBron has been a Laker for six years. He has signed three contracts. Those are facts. LeBron has never before been in position with the Lakers to be a free agent at the end of the season. He has an option in his contract for this next season. That's a fact. I also don't believe that he would walk away from L.A., nor do I think he wants to walk away from $50 million. But he does have an option in his contract. That's all I'll say. Wow. Does LeBron want to end up on the same team as Bronny someday? Is that where this is all headed, Stephen? What is LeBron's angle here? I, I kind of think he just stays with the Lakers and or he uh, hangs it up and retires a Laker. But what is LeBron James at 39 years old thinking? I... It would be hard to turn down fifty million dollars, guaranteed. Like I just at that age, he's still a really good player, and that's the thing. He still belongs. Is he a fifty million dollar player? He, probably not fifty million dollars, but someone would give it to him because of all the st other stuff he brings along. And I do think Bronny has a lot to do with it. I think that's why he has this option in his contract, just in case he doesn't like the direction of the Lakers. He can just say, look, I'm out, and I'm going to go follow Bronny, whoever drafts Bronny. If he gets drafted, that is. He's really struggled at USC this year. But I don't know, man. LeBron LeBron is always doing his doing his own thing, and I don't. it's hard to say what he's going to do. But Windhorst bringing this up and just stating it as fact and say don't run with it, doesn't that make you believe like he knows something, like LeBron is going to get out or wants out of L.A.? And the fact that the Lakers aren't very good this year, they don't have many options to trade to improve their team, Seems like it's a perfect opportunity for LeBron just to bounce again and go to a new a new team next season.
Yeah, I, I'll just tell you this. Brand, I know Brian Windhorst well. And, you know, he started covering LeBron when LeBron was in high school. He sort of rose up and ended up on ESPN because he was the LeBron guy. Windhorst knows what's going on in LeBron's ecosystem. Very close, connected. And this could just be LeBron as he tends to do. Floating something out there, using a you know a source he, he knows will get to the public to kind of make people think. You know, LeBron's whole thing about, uh, you know, am I coming back, not coming back? Like, you know, people, uh, I don't know. Is there some part of LeBron where he just, he needs that? He needs the public to focus on what he's doing or the threat of him leaving? Or, you know, has he been at the eye of the storm so long that he that he needs the spotlight. That's a that's a good point because he has always been the star of everything. He's he has that ego where he wants to be talked about at all times. And right now, it's definitely not to be talked about what's on the court. It has to be everything off the court. Um, and he does like to make it about himself. So that is, that you know that is a good view of that. And it may just be that that he wants people to con- continue talking about him and what he's going to do and kind of build up the importance of him on the team, whether you know how much it actually is. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, I know Windhorst, he's not just he's not just throwing that out there. Somebody who knows LeBron is telling Windhorst this that hey, there's an option there. There's a path there. Uh I I like you don't think he's a 50 million dollar player, but you know, is Damian Lillard worth 47? You know, I I don't know. You know, at this point of their careers. Mike McDonald is the new coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Former Ravens defensive coordinator talks about why he took the job. Punch it. It is a leap of faith, and but this is a special city, and this is a great football city, man. And we got the best fans in the world, and um, I understand where where this organization wants to go, and I feel like we're aligned on how we want to get there, and I'm just juiced to go do it. He's juiced to go do it. Seahawks going defensive in a, you know, NFC West that has got some offensive-minded coaches. think it's a good strategy by the Seahawks. They stay on the defensive side of the ball, as Pete Carroll was. But now they have the youngest coach in the NFL. Last season, they had the oldest coach in the NFL. We'll see if that energy, that infusion, the ideas that he's bringing with the Ravens, can he be successful, as successful as a head coach, as he was a coordinator. A lot of questions for a guy who's a first-time head coach, first-time, first-year head coach, Mike McDonald, next guy in with the Seahawks. Yesterday on the program, we had Joe Goodman Jr. talking about Nick Saban. Nick Saban's blank slate at Alabama. Now handed to Kalen DeBoer. Will DeBoer have that success? Will he have the ability to write his own legacy? And will fans at Alabama be patient with him at all? Here's Joe Goodman. Punch it. This is a new world. Like Nick Saban didn't want anything to do with that world. So he cashed in his chips. And Kalen DeBoer has a blank canvas. All right? I mean, college football is going to be so much different in the future. Like it, it, We're going to look back and we're going to be like, that was the saving era. And then everything after that is this new world for college football. So that's what Kalen DeBoer is walking into. And it's just going to matter how much money he can raise. I mean, that 
that's that's what college football comes down to right now at the moment until they change the rules or they get a handle on everything or uh, they create this new division or Congress steps in or whatever is going to happen. Okay, whatever mechanism triggers you know sanity, um, it's just going to come down to how much money can you raise. And if Kalen DeVore can play that game, uh, you know he's going to have a chance to write his own legacy at Alabama. There he goes. Chance to write your own legacy, but no patience at all. Goodman went on to say fans will have no patience that, you know, there'll be no, uh, there'll be no excuses. There will not be a wide berth. If he loses to Auburn, they may call for his head. That's the job that Kalen DeBoer took at Alabama. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Good show today. Thank everybody who participated in the show today. And by participate, I mean, did you listen to the show? Great. You're here now. Thank you. Uh, all of that. A uh, lot to talk about. We've covered uh, some of the Super Bowl. We've covered um, baseball, obviously. We talked about Damian Lillard's return last night to Moda Center. Steven went. His kids went with him. Uh, your family went. Like, all right, in the end, Steven, can I ask you? You're rooting for the Blazers to win. They get the win. You saw Dame did on the ride home. What was the conversation in the car? Just how much fun it was. Like it was, it was a very good time. And the arena, it was, it was more of the fan base. I, I, that was the biggest takeaway from all of us. Was man, how loud it was in there. How into the game they were for the entire. And it was the entire game. It was just the first quarter and the fourth quarter. It was the second quarter, third quarter. Just random parts of the game. The crowd was always into it. It really showed. I thought it was a great showing by the fans, right? Like the Blazers have been bad this season and you don't necessarily want to pay your hard earned money for bad performances because they haven't Mm. been performing. They haven't been showing a lot of effort, but the players came out and they played in this big time game. You knew it would be a big game with Dame coming back and the fans showed out and it really showed how good I think the rip city fan base can be when there's important games to be played. Now it may take a while for the Blazers to get back to that spot, but it is one of those things where, I forgot about that because the Blazers haven't played important games since probably that Western Conference Finals run. Like, they really haven't. And so it was fun to get that that thought back in my head that, okay, the fans still got it. The fans still care about this franchise. And it will, it will be okay even for the fans that love Dame. It's going to be okay, and the fans will always be here. I, I, you know, I had somebody ask me today, why, why don't you talk more about the Trailblazers on the show? And part of the reason is I don't think there's a great enthusiasm – and I don't think it'll be well received to spend our time talking about a franchise that isn't generating a lot of enthusiasm at the arena. And we talk about it in bigger picture terms, but I just don't think the, um, you know, the, you know, when they're filling the arena and it's rocking like it was last night, of course we're going to talk about it. And when it's not, we're probably going to talk about other things. And that's kind of, that's the answer there. Like this is a, this is a very fair system that we run on this show. Yeah, it's I think it's very fair. You earn your minutes on this show just like you're in the Blazers earned their minutes last night. So we talk about them today. 100%. And I'm with like I'm a Blazer fan. I watch pretty much every single game that I can and they don't deserve to be talked about a lot of the times here on this show. Like it just they don't because there's nothing really to talk about except for the big picture stuff which may be off the court. It may be the management stuff, maybe ownership stuff. So it's one of those things where last night, yeah, it was it was easy to talk about it because it was such a fun atmosphere and fun game. 
Blazers actually showed up and played. Like if the Blazers don't show up last night, we don't even have to talk about it. But they actually showed no. up and played, so it was it was a good time all around. Everyone had a great I, yeah, time. I, I'm actually glad that they showed up to play because otherwise we're just talking about Damian Lillard's return, and you know really that was talked about. But it's this conversation that we've had today about the Blazers has mostly been about the Blazers in the way that they played. I now want to pivot though into what I think is the stupidest gambler on planet Earth, if I can for a moment. Yeah, if you ever known somebody that you thought was a bad gambler, um, this guy said, hold my beer. Let me show you how bad gambling is done. Um, former Alabama baseball head coach Brad Bohannon, we, this story surfaced uh, months and months ago, but the NCAA has uh, determined that he violated NCAA wagering and ethical conduct rules when he provided insider information to someone that he knew to be engaged in betting on an Alabama game. This, according to the NCAA's Committee on Infractions, they had the hearing. He's been fired by Alabama. Bohannon uh, did not participate in the investigation. He uh, he failed to participate there. The school and the enforcement staff agreed that the violations occurred when he communicated via a messaging app with an individual that he knew to be betting. Now, um, specifically... Bohannon texted the student-athlete's name and said, so-and-so is out for sure. Let me know when I can tell the opposing team. Now, his starting pitcher was out for the game. They were going to scratch him against LSU. And he was communicating this to an individual who was inside a betting facility <laughs> that that was uh, uh, trying to place a $100,000 wager on LSU, and uh, telling people at the betting windows, this is a sure thing. I it is like we all have heard a friend say, this is a sure thing, and uh, this individual tried to place a hundred thousand dollar wager on LSU. Was told you can only place fifteen thousand. That's the limit, and then said, I have a sure thing, and then showed the people. Um, at the betting window, showed the employees his phone and said, look here. This, you know, and so this guy, this friend of the Alabama coach, has to be the dumbest gambler ever for going to the betting windows. His name's Bert Eugene Neff. Tried to place a $100,000 wager on, a, on the game. Was limited to 15000 by the sportsbook staff. And the bet was play, placed at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And uh, then Alabama scratched its starting pitcher. And then uh, Neff, by the way, uh, later comes out. He, he's facing up to 10 years in prison, by the way, for uh, for destroying evidence. And he, he tells the people at the betting window, hey, look, it's a sure thing. Look who I'm texting with. It's the Alabama coach. That guy is a dumb gambler. That is a that's a great story uh, because first of all the the first the first time he probably tries to place a hundred thousand dollar bet on Alabama LSU baseball I'm sure red flags just started going off like what in the world why are we getting a hundred thousand dollars here in Ohio on an <laughs> Alabama LSU baseball bet like this guy that is that is dumb that is just so dumb John yeah and, and like here's the thing like you have to know that the when you try to place that bet first of all. Surveillance video of the sports book is going to capture you. You're going to have to come back and claim the winning wager. 
but you know you you're not you shouldn't be showing the text message to the betting employee at the MGM window and going look let me let me place the hundred thousand dollar bet this is a sure thing like that was sure to raise a flag if I have a sure thing John I'm not sharing it with anybody and I'm gonna win and win as much money as I possibly can like I'm not telling people like hey this is gonna happen like I'm gonna try to keep myself like you always see squirrely things happen like you'll see a stock that spikes for no reason and then the next day there's a big announcement you know you know you, know, you kind of suspect like a hey, word got out or whatnot but this wasn't a word got out thing this was the head coach of Alabama in the dugout texting his friend in the sports book saying our starting pitcher is going to scratch let me know when I can tell LSU hurry up and then uh apparently uh the the guy was telling people it is a thousand percent winner <laughs> well didn't win did he the bald-faced truth not here for a long time just a good time how about a simple new year's resolution one where you're guaranteed to succeed reverse the clock on hair loss with advanced hairs simple one day treatment you'll feel more confident and more youthful when you witness your own natural hair growing into those places where it's been balding or thinning for years from advanced hairs breakthrough technology to their highly experienced team there is no one i trust more in hair restoration their simple fue treatment begins to regrow your own natural hair the very next day and your new hair is backed by the advanced hair guarantee simply put Advanced Hair's exceptional standard of care makes your comfort and your results their top priority. Did I mention that the results can last a lifetime? Celebrate this new year with a fuller head of hair and get a free consultation, $250 off, and 250 free hair grafts. Call 503-832-HAIR. That's 503-832-HAIR. Or become inspired with the before and after pictures at advancedhair.com. 